Good afternoon and welcome to the Cutbanks Conversations, our podcast about hunting, fishing, and conservation issues in British Columbia. We are coming to you from the Spruce City Wildlife Hatchery on River Road in Prince George, just along the shores of the Nechaco River, and just in the beautiful visage of the Cutbanks, watching all those people go up and down the hill today getting a little cardio. So here we are. I hope everybody has enjoyed the first couple of episodes. We're into episode three. It's pivotal for us because episode three means we can now upload to iTunes and get into all those wonderful iPhone owner peoples and find a new audience and hopefully uh, spread the word. So hope everybody's listened to the first two and you got some value in it. And if you have any feedback, we have our website, thecutbanksconversations.ca. Feel free to leave us comments. You can also find us on Facebook. We have our own Facebook page and just let us know how we're doing. And if you have any ideas for subject matter you'd like to, for us to cover in future episodes, let us know. Today's episode... I hope you guys all dig the title. It's called The Province, A Wildlife Crisis and an Economy Walk into a Bar. Stop me if you've heard this one before. <laughs> so we're going to get into uh, some discussions about wildlife management policy, uh, how that intersects with resource extraction in the province, the challenge uh, that exists for wildlife managers working uh, between those two competing interests, what that means for us as uh, hunters um, specifically in terms of opportunity, how that impacts resident hunters, First Nations, uh, guides, and outfitters. There's going to be a lot of there's going to be a lot of ground covered today, and it should be a really good discussion. So, just a quick roll call of everybody that's with you. I'm Don Willimont, and I'll just go around. We've got Michael Schneider from uh, here in Prince George. Uh, Michael is a guide and outfitter. Mike Morris, uh, MLA for Prince uh, George Mackenzie. Steve Hamilton, president of the Spruce City Wildlife Association, and we're going to get started right away. So first thing is, let's uh, do a little update. There's lots of stuff that's going on in our midst, lots of things to talk about that's going on generally in uh, hunting, fishing, some regulation changes. Mike, what's, uh, let's talk a little bit about some of those COVID implications on our uh, spring and fall seasons hunting and fishing-wise. Well, I think everybody wants to know what local means, uh, you know, uh, People are pretty much restricted in travel and venturing out into the hinterlands uh, by virtue of the provincial health order. So I think we have to look at that. And that's going to keep a lot of people from going to their favorite spot uh, during hunting season if it uh, lasts that long. But even, uh, you know, over the bear season, if somebody wants to jump in the pickup truck and go for a hunt, it's got to be local. You know, and local for us in Prince George, uh, we got lots of options here. Uh, when you're sitting in Vancouver in the Lower Mainland, local um, doesn't mean that you travel outside Lower Mainland and you're uh, venturing into uh, other communities and whatnot. So that's going to have a big bearing on on the uh, the freedom that everybody exercises during regular hunting seasons up here. So a couple of things to that. So, uh, Michael Steiner, it's affected you guys, obviously, in your industry. We talked about that a little bit ago. Is there any change in the guiding uh, industry or any more updates you have in terms of how COVID's going to uh, impact your industry as a whole? No, no positive news yet. I mean, we're probably going to be the last ones um, with tourists coming in from outside the country, uh, some from Europe, some from the States, some driving, most flying. We'll see what happens. What we are working on right now is the uh, best practices. Once that's finished, it'll go to uh, the ministry. And whenever they feel um, that the time is right, they will comment on it and send it back. And basically, uh, once they've decided to uh, let you know tourists come back and op- business uh, open the doors and operate again uh, we'll have to apply those yeah I, I mean when you look at it nobody's you, you can't fly anywhere right now um, we had a long-range shooting course for instance for uh, two weeks from now and we had to cancel it because you know Rob Furlong and his crew they still you can't travel interprovincially so 
I mean, that's off the table. LEH, huge. I was on a, I was on um, BC Hunter Action Circle last night in a, in a conversation. And I'll tell you, there's a lot, emotions are running super high around the province. There were some people, I mean, lots of people understand the measures, but I don't know if you guys have seen any of those threads, but I got into some pretty heated debates or tried to diffuse them, I guess. There were some people pretty upset about, you know, well, you know, I always put in here, I, I, I need to, like, I don't want COVID to change my life. I'm going to go where I want to go. And then the other, I had other people that were saying, hey, listen, you got to practice some restraint. But the big thing, Mike, is, is it, nobody knows what local is. And, you know, nobody's necessarily, not nobody. There was a lot of people on there that seemed, they, they seemed immune or, or indifferent to the risk because of COVID. So I don't know. Any thoughts on that? Is, is immune a, uh, a, a choice word there? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's a pun. You know, local, um, everybody's going to try and rationalize it to suit their own particular need. And, and uh, you know, that happens in everything that we do here. But local, you know, if it, can, if it comes down to any kind of a legal definition, local means local. Like it means within your immediate vicinity and your immediate area. It doesn't mean having to travel, uh, whether you stay in your truck and you have to stop at various fuel stations along the way. Once you venture into an outside area, it doesn't have the health facilities. It's set up to deal with the population base that it has within that local catchment area. And it can't handle any of the other traffic that comes in and yeah. out of that community. Yeah. Uh, particularly for COVID, so we need to keep that in mind. Yeah, we one of our one of our cast members, uh, Mandy Starnes, is a nurse here in PG, and that's one of the things that she. Would, I mean, she's she said there's lots of smaller uh, municipalities that just they don't have even a hospital, and they're not equipped. If something happens, they need to be equipped for real emergent care, like a hunter or you know a heart attack, or you know a hunter gets hurt, pardon me, or there's a heart attack, or they what they don't need is to have a whole COVID protocol dumped on them in the middle of all this. So. You know, I, I get tensions are running high. There's lots of impact on, on you know, the, the way we, we normally go to the woods. This is just, this year is just not going to look like that. There were lots of people that were debating, though, and I'm not sure how to answer this. You know, some people say, well, I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll get all my fuel and all my groceries and I'll load it all up and I'll disappear and I won't stop in any community. Does that count? No. No? Doesn't count. Okay. You know, because something could happen and you're in, a, in another area. You just can't go home and, and go to your local clinic or your local doctor. And, and that's what you need to be able to have handy uh, for that. I guess the other way to look at it from my perspective is our gain populations are way down. Our ungulate populations are way down. Why not give this an opportunity, you know, for, for whatever calves are born this year, give them another chance and give them an extra year, uh, the cows an extra year and everything else there. And uh, I think that's the way we should be looking at this. I think a lot of the uh, the questions are coming up uh, is around that, that the fact that it says it's requested, not ordered to stay in your local area. That's a good point, Steve. Yeah, I mean, it's, what, what, Mike, do you see a, does that become an order? Like, would that become an order? I know, you, like, and that's the language, you're right. It says it's requested yeah. that you, right? It's requested, not you are told. Right, that's to. not, um, that's not a, uh, that is, you're right, uh, Steve, it's not an order. It's a uh, recommendation by the provincial health officer. But if things get carried away, it could very well turn into an order um, if we see too many people taking that option. I'm going to throw a turd in the punch bowl, uh, if I may. Um, turd away. <laughs> so I just read that the uh, tree planters are coming from all over, and they're all going to go out there where we're not allowed to go. Can somebody answer to me how that's justifiable? Actually, I can. Uh, so I, I, I actually have, through, through one of my coworkers, somebody that's involved in, in civic culture and tree planting, uh, so they had, 
uh, the particular company that he works with, they had 30 million seedlings that if they did not have a decision by the, I think it's around the 10th of May, all 30 million seedlings had to get tossed out because they won't grow. Uh, so what they've had to done, they, they, they've had to, you got 30 million trees that got to go in the ground, but what they had to do is basically now you can't have tree planters. It's one tent and they're, instead of having those camps like you would normally see where they're all kind of gathered into like a gravel pit or something, they're going to be spread out all the way along a road. They've had to ha- implement uh, multiple washroom facilities, multiple food tents. They got to change a whole lot of protocols in order to do that. So I know where Michael's going to go with this. I 100% know where this is going. And we're going to get into it in a little bit. Let's get ready to rumble. <laughs> I'm impressed. Yeah, a little, so, little nervous, but impressed. Yeah. So uh, I, 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 we'll come back to that. Michael, is it okay? We'll come back to that. Uh, Steve, Big Bar, uh, there is one, uh, one update from our uh, episode two that's a, that's a good change. Uh, yeah, actually, Woosh Industries has made it up here and they have started work to get that pneumatic fish cannon up here. I was just going to say, what's the Woosh? That Tell them what it is. It's a pneumatic fish can. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, you said that. So, but can you tell, so what's the difference for the whoosh versus, you know, the helicopters and let's put them in the back of a truck and what's the difference in terms of volume of fish? Uh, whoosh can move a lot more fish. It's, it's less invasive. These fish basically get sucked up into this tube and then uh, forced along with water pressure to uh, their next destination, saves them coming out of the water, saves them being physically handled, and uh, basically saves a lot of time. Yeah, it does. I, I've heard the, I can't remember the volume. I should have looked it up before the I podcast. Want, I want to see if somebody's 000. got their phone handy, Matt, our, our producer, he's going to look that up. We're going to figure out how many fish the whoosh can uh, move, and we'll get back to that. A couple of other things, I guess. There were some illegal elk killed or poached, or we're not sure what happened on the Vancouver Island, Steve. You were talking about that. So, uh, Last number I heard was 15 elk were found poached on the island. So the CO service is uh, looking for help. Uh, we know we got listeners around the province. So if you've seen anything, give a wrap a call. Just just shot and left on the side of the road? Uh, that's what it looks like. Wow. Uh, looks like some are missing front legs, some are ris- missing rear legs, uh, bits and pieces here and there. So there's no real rhyme or reason to it. Is, is it a result of uh, COVID restrictions? We don't know. But either way, it's uh, a terrible thing that's uh, going on to that, the population. A couple of other things in the midst, I think, uh, just in general. Uh, morel season has started. I've seen some pictures. So there'll be uh, some morel foraging for all of you that want to expand your wild, uh, wild fare. Fiddleheads. Uh, Michael, are you into fiddleheads? No. no. Mike Morris, fiddleheads? Yeah, I've uh, harvested them a few times over the years. Yep. Does anybody have any tips? Because I've accidentally come across them before, but I, I would like to learn how to do this better. What, where should I be looking? I, other than the grocery store. I know we go to the grocery <laughs> store, but if I want wild fiddleheads, what am I looking for? Is there a, is there a land form I should be looking for? Or? The riparian areas along yeah. the swamps and the, the moist areas and whatnot, and just clip the tops off and uh, saute them in butter and uh, throw a few onions in there. It's pretty good. That sounds pretty darn good to Make me. Make sure oh. you cook them well, though. You'll find out the hard way what happens if you don't. Okay, I dig it. Thanks for the heads up on fiddleheads. Spring bear is here. Uh, bears are starting to get up and move around. I've had lots of people. We've actually even on our 250 Predator page, we've seen a couple of nice bears already taken. Um, I guess we'll just have to do some solo hunting. So bear hunting will be solo. It looks like at least for the month of May, we'll see what happens in June. Last thing. So Mike, you don't, you, you don't have a regular guiding season, but in all of that, you have got a terrific program that you've managed to, uh, to get off the ground and going, and it's around developing some future guides in Takla, I think. Oh <clears throat> yeah. It started out by, um, having some youth, uh, approach us and, and, uh, they thought it would be cool to, uh, maybe come along on, on some of these flying remote location 
adventure trips. And I said, yeah, um, what we should do is maybe have an internship. The more we talked about it, one of a sudden there was other kids and this, and one, one thing led to another. And before we knew it, I was thinking about, you know, coming from Germany, uh, you know, 33 years ago, over there they have an education system where after grade nine you have to make a decision if you go in, if, if you go into a, a medical field or, or any kind of field that requires uh, university or further studies. And um, if you end up uh, deciding going for a trade, you take the trade route, and that's usually a three-year apprenticeship program uh, that is coupled with education in a school, but the classroom is full of uh, whatever it is you're taking the apprenticeship for. So it's a, it's a blend. And the more we talked about it, the more I talked to some uh, people that are smarter than me about this, they, they thought it might be an awesome opportunity, uh, especially for some of the youth that are uh, struggling in the classroom, that are happy out on the land. And I could instantly relate to that feeling. Uh, I was very much struggling in the classroom and would rather be out and um, hunt and gather. So we put our heads together and worked with a bunch of different people, including the school district, 57, some individuals there, as well as 91. And we're somewhat dissecting the curriculum and the learning outcomes and the necessary credits and how we could possibly integrate them into a three-year apprenticeship program. And TACLA itself uh, has uh, traditional and cultural knowledge that they would then integrate into the program too. So the kids are going to learn about uh, the tourism industry, all the things that come with that, from cabin building to uh, uh, processing meat to taxidermy skills to um, marketing uh, product development. Uh, we're taking DNA samples. We're taking, um, you know, working with uh, EDI here from Prince George to integrate scientific things. EDI also has partnered up with the Sasu Chan, that's the development corporation right. for TACLA. And so we're doing some really serious on the ground, you know, help gather information, DNA, and all these things are uh, integrated into uh, learning outcomes and, and credits. So it's, it's a very interesting. Uh, how many, uh, how many students do you have? So we're going to start out with four students. Okay. And it's going to be a three year program. It's a pilot project. We're really heavy on uh, content. We're very light on funding. <laughs> um, like all things in British Columbia. I was, I was you know, uh, expecting a really good season this year with clients. Our bookings are uh, really, really good this year, which is a problem now. And um, so we're trying to uh, move people to the coming years and uh, trying to avoid having to um, refund deposits. Uh, so it's, it's going to be an interesting year on whole bunch of different levels but i'm um, looking forward to uh, taking those youth out and um, doing some projects with them so if uh, anyone's interested um, there's a couple of great uh, avenues for you to donate some money uh, one of them would be to, if somebody's interested i know for us at wood wheaton uh, where matt and i work uh, we've helped them out with some tools in the program if you're a business that would like to be involved you can reach out to michael schneider at the cutbanks uh, conversations.ca or take a look at our, just leave him a message on our Facebook page. And if you want to get involved or see if there's something you can help contribute to help him get this great program, great initiative uh, for these kids at Takla to get it off the ground. Okay, I think that is it. It's time to get into the meat of the matter. We're going to start with Steve Hamilton in at 181 pounds, hailing from Vancouver, British Columbia. Steve, you might want to jump into this thing. You can lead us off with 
why don't we talk about the North American wildlife model? First off, I want to thank you for saying I'm 181 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> Not since I've been about 17. Dude. <laughs> yep. You look good, man. You look good. You've been working out lots in this, uh, I can tell. Right? No, co- COVID starvation. COVID starvation. Good for you. So, All right. Well, we're going to get into this thing, and it may get a little bit, uh, there'll be some of us that'll be at loggerheads, no pun, or maybe a whole pun intended. But let's get started. We're going to take a look at uh, the North American wildlife model. Steve, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what you know about that? Uh, Most of us know the name Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, He's not only a former president, but an ardent hunter and a conservationist. So I'll I'll just take a step back to January. I was down in Reno at the Sheep Show. I was pretty uh, happy to see that Simon Roosevelt, Teddy's great-great-grandson, was the keynote speaker. Oh, wow. Yeah, definitely had my attention when I saw that. He gave an amazing rally cry and uh, talked about some things that I, I, I saw there was a parallel with uh, Canada. One of the, the main things was that less than 5% of the population in the USA are hunters. That really surprised what? Yeah. Less than 5%? That's the number he gave. Wow. It, it kind of parallels uh, us in BC. He, he stressed that we need to continue to educate and press the message of conservation. Uh, it's not just in Canada, in BC, on the decline of hunter numbers. He, he said that same thing we notice here, that uh, conservation is generally seen to be hikers, bikers, boaters, and hunters take a back seat, even though we do the lion's share. Uh, it was inspiring to, to see and to hear. So uh, anyway, let's get back to Teddy. He was the most, one of the most powerful voices in the history of American conservation and uh, arguably in North America. As a kid, he uh, discovered a passion for the outdoors. Passionate hunter, as we all know. If you dig into his writings, he wasn't just about taxidermy and animals on his wall. He, his writings are generally pretty heavily on how sad he felt for loss of the species and habitat. And this is going back into the, the late 1800s. I, I think to be fair, he was a, Teddy Roosevelt evolved into that. He, he was a, an avid trophy hunter for a while, and he had an epiphany at some point, and particularly in buffalo hunting. And then I think he started to realize that, that wildlife was moving towards a cliff. And I think he, he had a moment of self-awareness and said, okay, I got to start changing things because he didn't. I mean, and maybe that's like all of us. He came from a, a different hunting perspective, and he evolved into that. So I, I think... Uh, oh, abs- absolutely. But yeah. uh, he, he did realize that conservation needed to be the nation's highest priority. He, he did uh, become president in 1901, and he immediately established 150 uh, national forests, 51 federal bird reserves, four national game preserves, five national parks, and 18 national monuments on over 230 million acres of public land. That's some pretty amazing numbers. Yeah, but seriously. Yep. Cool yep. bit of trivia. Do you know where he was born? No. New York City. City boy. City boy. So uh, there goes that math, right? That it's uh, yeah, it's just those that <laughs> it's always those darn people on the Lower Mainland. If you're listening, it's it's not you. We realize. Yeah, yep. you're you're all future Theodore Roosevelt's. So we can only hope we can inspire <laughs> like he did, right? <laughs> uh, he was one of the first to realize that bag limits needed to be set and that wildlife needed to be managed. He pushed for regulations, organized conservation groups like Spruce City Wildlife Association. Yep. It's truly fascinating to, to listen and, and see his great-great-grandson and get to meet him. If, if you get a chance to look up any of Simon's speeches and read any of his uh, writings, it's pretty amazing to see just that conservation did follow Teddy's legacy. Yeah, just, just, I'm just going to jump in. One of the things that's interesting about the conversations, as Roosevelt is evolving his conservation ethic in the U.S., one of the people that he leans into um, for support on a, I guess, a global, uh, global stage is Wilfrid Laurier, our prime minister at the time. 
So, I mean, they had the, I think, the, the, the Convention on Conservation in 1909. Uh, Roosevelt had basically reached out and said, hey, listen, I, we need Canadian involvement in this to make this work. This is, and they, they exchanged those ideas quite a bit and then brought a lot of other people to bear. So like uh, George Bird Grinnell, uh, Gifford Pinchot, you know, some of the people from the, uh, the, the U.S. Forest Service. And, the, and they had counterparts in Canada that they were working in conjunction with. He starts to create the fabric even back then of the uh, Migratory uh, Bird Convention, which became the Migratory Bird Act in 1917. Mm -hmm. But that's really, all of those things come out of one guy saying, hey, listen, like, it doesn't matter what we did before. Like, we can't do this for forever. We got to make changes right now. And he he reached out to other other partners. And really, that's kind of, that's sort of how you start to set up a little bit of the framework, which eventually becomes the North American model of conservation. I just think it's, like, you're right, like out of all of the people in the world of conservation, as we see it through our lens as hunters, he's, he's it. Like, he, he's like ground zero for the movement, um, in, in, at least in, a, in a, you know, a modern context, 19th, 20th century context. So super cool. Yeah. Speaking of bring to bear, you know that teddy bear is named after him? Yeah, yeah, yes, I do. You know the story behind it. Yeah, so something about tying a bear to a tree. Is that so, that's the one? Okay, so we'll finish the story. So for those that don't know it, so what is the story? Uh, he, he was uh, on uh, a market hunt, and they uh, presented him a black bear tied to a tree for him to shoot. He refused, and that bear ended up taking on the name Teddy, and became uh, the modern day teddy bear. There you go. Now we know how teddy bears are formed. So from, from one man's restraint, super cool. Okay, so from there, Steve, where do we, how do, let's lay out the framework of the North American conservation model that he authored. That's right. Seven Sisters of Conservation, as they're known, the guidelines that were originally discussed in the 1800s, and they were finally uh, refined by the 1950s, and they're still used today. Uh, we'll just quickly take a, a drive through them. Number one, maintaining wildlife as a public trust resource entrusted to the state or province to manage. Number two is prohibiting deleterious. Deleterious. Deleterious, big word. <laughs> I haven't had my coffee today and I don't even drink coffee. Commerce in dead wildlife products. Number three, regulating and defining appropriate wildlife use by law. Number four is ensuring wildlife can only be killed for legitimate purposes. Number five is recognizing and managing wildlife as an international resource. Number six is utilizing and safeguarding science as the appropriate basis for wildlife policy. And number seven is protecting the democratic allocation of citizen opportunity to harvest wildlife. So like we discussed, there's seven. And the model basically revolves around two key pieces of it. Number one being wildlife is a public trust. Right. And number two, wildlife is to be managed in a way that their population should be sustained forever. So... Mike, I'm going to direct this one towards you because I can see you chomping at the bit. I know you've got a lot to say about policy. What does wildlife in a public trust look like when it comes to British Columbia to you? <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> you know, I, you know. Oh, you that, can just leave it there. Terrible is good. If you, want. <laughs> you know, On that, to the next that one. <laughs> public trust doctrine was recognized by the Supreme Court of Canada in the Chilcotin decision when it uh, um, defined rights and title and gave the Chilcotin title to an area of, of land within the Chilcotin area there. And, and what they said is that that is yours to keep forever for the children and, and for people in perpetuity uh, within the band. It can't be sold um, and, and it has to be maintained in order to, you know, if there's natural resources on it, you can harvest those natural resources, but it has to be there forever for the children 100, 200, 300 years down the road here. That's the way we need to look at our resources right. in British Columbia. The public trust, uh, the government is entrusted with maintaining our 
biodiversity for everybody. And, uh, you know, if we want our great-grandchildren and our great-great-grandchildren to taste and feel and smell and hear everything that we heard back in the early 1900s in British Columbia here. So so that's where, uh, um, you know, that is paramount. And that's been forgotten over the years. And I think it got veered off course after the Royal Commission on Forestry in 1943, the report that came out in 1945. And it was this, the, the commissioner at that time decreed that British Columbia will operate under a sustained yield force policy where all we're going to do is grow trees, cut them down and harvest them and grow some more trees. And at that particular time, he did make a comment on the, the fact that we had other valleys on the land, wildlife and, and, uh, and other, other things. But he said that is inconsequential and uh, it has nothing to do with the sustained yield policy that we have. So we've been operating under that sustained yield policy now for 75 years, and we're seeing the results of that today, a wildlife habitat, the degradation of our salmon spawning streams, our steelhead uh, uh, populations and whatnot, and we have to bring that back somehow. Can you just explain sustainable yield in forestry? You bet. All they're <laughs> thinking about is growing and harvesting trees, but I'll, I'll read the definition from the commissioner uh, in 1945. Okay. So he said, a sustained yield policy has, as one objective... The maintenance of forest cover and growth, thus ensuring a perpetual supply of raw material for forest industries with consequent stability of industrial communities and assurance of permanent payrolls. He goes on to say, however, a no less important objective is the perpetuation of the forest cover to assure the continuance of the many direct and indirect benefits which flow therefrom, in addition to the mere growing of wood. In my view, however, None of these factors is a necessary or an essential ingredient of the definitions to be applied to the term sustained yield. And I think that's where the wheels fell off. So if you're listening to this and, and you don't hunt, or if you're listening to this and you're not sure why, you know, why, you know, why are we bringing up forestry? Like, why, you know, why has Mike got forestry in the middle of it? This isn't an indictment of forestry necessarily. What it's an indictment of is when you look at how you've, there's a prescription for managing the land base. And if you look, you know, north of the lower mainland along, you know, from the Fraser River all the way up, you know, to the tip of the Yukon and off to the Alberta border, there's lots of industries that compete for, you know, land access and need to utilize it. We have uh, impacts from hydroelectric programs. Uh, we have pipeline. We have mining. The reason that forestry in this particular case is probably the, it's probably the most impactful is because it's the one that on top of the land removes the the single largest amount of habitat not that you don't i mean there's i mean when you build uh, dams whether it's you know the the williston dam project or we look at the kinney dam where you flood these basins and yes you you change migratory patterns and and you you remove land, uh, land base forestry is constantly is constantly doing that it's constantly changing the landscape so that's one of the reasons that we're going to visit forestry policy in this particular discussion because the reality is if Michael, Michael Snyder, if you, if you had a mine in your backyard, which I don't, I, where you are in either of your territories, is there mining operations in there? No, not an active one. Closest one would be Kames to the east. How much of a footprint does mining have? Uh, very small. Uh, and the other missing factor, I think, is a secret ingredient in the soup is uh, the Migratory Bird Convention Act, because every other proponent would have to go through a environmental assessment, and there's things identified and they're uh, managed around or for or with. Forestry doesn't have to do that at all. 
Oh, what do you, okay, hang on. What do you mean forestry doesn't have to do that at all? Has to, forestry doesn't have to do what at all with birds? So, for instance, uh, I was told a story there where BC Hydro was uh, planning a right-of-way for a power line and there was an eagle's nest and uh, they had to go around and it was complicated and steep and it cost them like $4 million to go around an eagle's nest. Forestry just lays out the blocks and they, they take the fiber, which they are legally and uh, obviously for business purposes rightfully doing so. None, none of that than, than the other uh, land use uh, competitors. I'll just jump in. Just a yep. quick yep. comment yeah, on this. Um, the Migratory Bird Convention Act applies to everyone in Canada. And it's a tripartite agreement between Canada, the U.S., and Mexico. And Mexico yeah. So all of the songbirds and birds that migrate back and forth across the borders are susceptible to this. In, in British Columbia, uh, it is illegal to disturb a nest or an egg from May until August, pretty much. Uh, including forestry has to abide by that as well. So no cutting trees down to disturb nests or eggs in the court. We also have uh, similar provisions under our Provincial Wildlife Act as well. Yep. But forestry does go in. And, uh, you know, Michael's right. Mining go to great lengths. BC Hydro actually had to slow down Site C because of the fact they couldn't cut some of the deciduous trees down because of the Migratory Bird Convention Act. The uh, uh, highways, mining, everybody has to abide by that. But forestry, for some reason, feel that they have, um, it's inconsequential, they can go ahead and do it. Technically, they can log if they send a biologist in and check every tree to make sure there's no nests in those trees. But it's not only just the Migratory Bird Convention Act. It's all mammals that are producing young do that in May, June, July, August. The Martin, the Fisher, uh, all of these uh, hollowed out aspen trees that are growing up there. Uh, you know, they could be den sites for a lot of those different species. There's 89 species of wildlife that use those uh, hollowed out trees for denning or nesting purposes in British Columbia. Okay. And because I'm, Steve, you and I spent enough time out hunting together. I mean, you, you see the result of it, but some of forestry's footprint gets really accelerated, you know, after you get the beetle, uh, beetle problems, right? So pine beetle, spruce beetle, then you have to accelerate the forest industry. You're, there's a bigger effort. There's a, a significant increase in the amount of forest canopy that's removed. I get that those things are impacts. There's this balancing act between we have an economy, uh, we have people that need to, to work. There's a demand for these resources. If there wasn't, we wouldn't be cutting them. Um, you know, we wouldn't be, you wouldn't be drilling, you wouldn't be drilling for oil. You wouldn't be laying a pipeline. You wouldn't be looking for power you, and you wouldn't be cutting trees if people didn't need them. You know, all these books that I love, the paper just, it has to come from somewhere. Th- those are the things that we, we need to do to keep, you know, our world going. And then we have all of this consequence that's visited on wildlife populations. What's the percentage of the land base that they allow for wildlife and how does that work? So, the, uh, under the Forest and Range Practices Regulations, it stipulates a whole bunch of different things. And it says the, the objective set by wa- government for wildlife is without unduly reducing the supply of timber from British Columbia's forests to conserve sufficient wildlife habitat in terms of amount of area, distribution of areas, and attributes of those areas for the survival of species at risk, the survival of reasonably important wildlife, and the winter survival of ungulate species. So I'm gonna, I'll talk a little bit about that, but... That, that ratio, without unduly reducing supply of timber from British Columbia's force, that's never been tested in court. But the government documentation show that it's 1%. So you, you can cut all the force down as long as you preserve 1% of the wildlife. Or, and I think it's something like 2.3% or 2.5% of the mature timber that's out there. 
But this, uh, it talks about the survival of species at risk. Those are only the listed species at risk. Right. Uh, it talks about the survival of regionally important wildlife. And this came out in 2005, this regulation. We still haven't defined what regionally important wildlife is, so that has never been, never been used. The winter survival of species or of specified ungulate uh, species. So I checked the, uh, the government action regulations and, and everything that we have just for the Prince George Timber Supply Area. We've got lots of habitat that's been set aside for goat and caribou. There's one moose ungulate winter range. And one? One in the entire Prince George Timber Supply Area. And it's up in the Finley River area. And I had a look at it uh, through Google Earth time lapse. Uh, it shows you all the, all the harvesting and uh, right around the world, actually. But I had a look at that, and it's been logged. And uh, there's also a fishery-sensitive area that's in the government action regulations um, up in the Table River and the Anzac River area and whatnot. And it's supposed to have been preserved uh, to a degree for uh, fisheries uh, because it's a sensitive area. And it's been heavily harvested as well probably over the last 10 years. So this, uh, I think... Uh, has been taken advantage of, and we need to kind of dial that back a little bit and uh, take control of our biodiversity again. How do we do that? Well, uh, I think we have to rescind those those parts of the regulations and reword them. Uh, make sure that uh, the forest company. I, I'm not against logging. I'm you know I've had family members involved in logging. I worked in the forest industry, uh, you know, back in the late '60s with a relative that had an outfit there. But it's changed a lot since then, and we can harvest anything that grows. We can cut it quicker and faster and more efficiently than ever before. Our mills are more efficient than ever before, and uh, we, can, we can cut everything that grows. So we have to dial it back a little bit, and the, the companies out there call it the rationalization of their saw milling capacities. Uh, you know, we got mills that cut 2 million cubic meters of wood a year, which is unheard of. But uh, so we, we have to dial that back and we have to come up with perhaps smaller mills that employ more people and, and specialize in, you know, whatever they're going to cut. But we don't have the, the big timber anymore. It's, we have harvested probably close to 30 to 40 million hectares of, of mature timber in British Columbia since the turn of the 20th century. And it takes a couple hundred years for that stuff to grow back or longer, depending on the, the type of tree and where that tree is. You look at the Chilcotin Plateau, it takes 150 years for a, a pine tree to reach a diameter of about a foot and a half. And it's high altitude, it's drier in some areas, and they have harvested that. And, uh, you know, so, in, you know, I have looked all over the place. Um, I spent a lot of time looking at maps and driving into different areas in the province here, and we're virtually out of wood. And we're reduced now to uh, small, small diameter timber, and, uh, you know, we'll, we can glue that together into big pieces. And, uh, you know, the outfits producing polymer are really going to be uh, happy over this. Cut them up into chips, all the little trees that we have out there, and make the glue lamb beams and all the different wood products out of that. But we are out of long fiber, old growth wood that British Columbia, it was world-class wood that we had here right across British Columbia. And we pretty much liquidated it from the province. To the naked eye, when I moved here, Okay, when I moved here in 2015, Steve and I start hunting together. So here's my, here's my perspective. I saw green trees everywhere, right? Yeah, I would see clear cuts and stuff, but I drive out and I see trees, right? Like Steve and I are driving around. I was like, man, there, there's, there's trees everywhere. Because I look out on a, on a mountainside and I was like, there's pine trees here, there's trees everywhere. To your point, Michael, it's like they look up and they're like, well, they got, there's trees everywhere. There's trees everywhere. So there's got to be wildlife everywhere. There's trees and there's wildlife. But the more I'm around it, the real, now I'm starting to realize some of that stuff 
is only 15, 20, 30 years old, right? And it might look green at the, on the hillside, but you get into there and it's, there's no understory underneath it. Like there's, there, there's no, there's no vegetation, um, you know, just all pine needles. But the, the reality is though, is that, yeah, there's lots of green out there, but the, a lot of those trees are, uh, they're, they're pretty young trees. It's going to be a while before they can be harvested again. And all of the mature timber, um, you start to see that you get off the, you get, you get out of your truck, you put a backpack on and you go for a hike for 15 K in the backcountry. You start to see really, really quickly as you work your way along those edges. It's like, you, you know, I've walked for, you know, miles and miles along a block and realized, holy cow, like some of this stuff's already been cut once before. And you know what really punctuated it for me? I go on the backpack camping trip to Groundhog Lake. And as we're at Barkerville, I'm looking at these pictures of Barkerville and there isn't a stick of wood on a hillside anywhere. That whole place was completely denuded. And I'm looking at this beautiful forest that I'm walking through and I realize holy cow, like these trees were all, they weren't here once upon a time. Like it's not that long ago. It's like a hundred and some years. These were all gone and here they're, they're, they're growing back. So what's the cycle then for forestry? Like what, what's your rotation cycle then? Well, it's shortened up over the years. You know, at the beginning of the 20th century, they were looking at a 120 year cycle and a little bit shorter down in the lower mainland. By 1900, they'd start closing mills down in Southern Vancouver on the lower mainland because there's no wood left. They denuded the entire uh, forest that was down in that area here. But uh, up until even into the 1970s, the cycle was still 100 years in, in Prince George and, and throughout the interior of the province and a little bit less in Lower Mainland. But then they realized that uh, the lodgepole pine grew quite a bit quicker. And uh, they thought that they could reduce it by growing lodgepole pines. And that's why we see these monocultural pine plantations that we have all over the place. And it's true, they did grow quicker. Up until the mid-60s, pine trees were considered waste. They never even bothered cutting them anymore. And uh, with the, uh, the pulp mill coming on board in the 1960s, everything was taken out of the bush, and that's when clear-cut started. And they realized that they needed to grow trees quicker, so lodgepole pine was a ticket. The problem that we had, we started growing lodgepole pines and planting them uh, in, in mass uh, in the late 1970s, into the 80s, and the federal government programs helped us catch up with that in the, into the 90s and 2000s. But then the pine beetle hit, and the pine beetle took a lot of those trees that we planted in the 70s and 80s and 90s and denuded that whole area again. You know, we have learned. I've seen uh, mixed forests, and when I say mixed, it's all conifers still, but it's mixed spruce and fir and pine. Right. Uh, We get rid of all the deciduous growth, which is a mistake because deciduous growth is, you know, is the most sought-after um, uh, food source for ungulates and the fur bearers and birds and, and all those other species. So now I just checked with Flynn Rowe here not too long ago and I said, tell me where your, where your uh, 8 or 10 million cubic meters of wood is going to come from in the Prince George Timber Supply Area and what age class that they're looking at. And uh, they said, well, we're going to be down into the 80-year-old wood. We don't have 80-year-old wood in Prince George Timber Supply. We've got 60-year-old wood. And I, I know one of the forest licensees has been taking 45 and 50-year-old wood, and it's only, you know, maybe eight inches in diameter at the very most. So we will never have an opportunity to have mature timber in the area if we keep harvesting our forests like that. Uh, it takes 70 or 80 years for a marten to move back in before the habitat is sufficient enough to support marten and fisher and some of those species. We don't see any moose in these conifer plantations because there's no food for them. There's no food value in there whatsoever. There's no protein uh, in those areas. So they, uh, they disappear. They starve to death and die and they don't breed. 
and they don't come back. So we've got to have a look at that. But, I, but I've seen some articles that talk about, you know, post-harvest, um, cereal vegetation is great for moose and deer. Um, so what, so what's the, M- Michael, this is, it happens in your neighborhood. You make a living on moose hunting. Um, so, so what am I missing? Cause I see that, I mean, I see enough writing that's scientific and it's not just from people that are against, you know, forestry or, you know, it's people say like the look there's, you know, forestry can have a good consequence in the cereal stages, at least post harvest. So what am I missing? I don't know. Um, moose. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> good point. Yeah, but, no, um, I, I know that, but. Uh, uh, I don't know. Um, I'm not a scientist, obviously, and uh, it's been, like I said before, a whole bunch of time out in the bush. Uh, on, the only thing I can tell you is what I see. Um, there was a really good presentation at UNBC. I think the gentleman's name was Jeff Warner, and he did a study on the nutritional value of uh, moose browse. So I've been outfitting for 33 years in the same area and then since 2012 in a second area. And so I have less information that's valid on on the second place. But the first one I've spent a lot of time at, there's a park in there. So that one even gives you uh, um, the other window to look at. Um, The place that was uh, harvested uh, heavy, they're kind of getting to the very last trees now that they can take out of there. The moose... Uh, went down in numbers, uh, the reproduction or calf uh, numbers went absolutely down to almost zero. Um, the old bulls went uh, back to, um, th- th- they were gone. Um, so your 10, 12-year-old bulls, you only would see the odd one. And you wouldn't see that many moose anymore. So the numbers are down and the size, and I think I mentioned that before in the, in the, in the other podcast, uh, the size of the moose was down quite a bit, way less meat on them. So there's a whole bunch of things that happened. Scientifically, I have no clue. All I can say is what I see. The ironic part, and it's a sad ironic part, is that I have a lot of friends that work in the forest industry. I have a lot of friends that work in the other industries that are linked to the forest industry. Um, I have a son that's dabbling getting into that once he gets his apprenticeship going. I'm not so sure if, if this is a family tradition to work in the forest, uh, if, if I as a father or a grandfather would recommend my um, you know, offsprings or next generations to go into forestry because I don't know what they're going to do. Um, we're racing towards a cliff. And this is just on a forestry perspective, uh, never mind all the other values. So what's this uh, whole northern BC or central interior going to uh, produce jobs and, and uh, income from? And and we all do want to have a good quality of life on the weekends and such. So where's the other values? They're not captured. We're not managing for them. It's a, it's a one-horse race, and that one is uh, going to die soon. Yeah, I just want to make you know an observation that I made, and I've been hunting and trapping and fishing in the same area for probably the last 40 years or more. There used to be a lot of browse. You'd go through uh, harvesting, and up until the mid-60s, it was all... Um, select logging. So anything bigger than 12 inches at breast height was, uh, was logged and anything smaller was left standing. So I had areas in my trap plan I'd go hunting that had been select logged up until the mid 60s. And uh, there was lots of game in there. There was lots of deciduous growth. There was lots of habitat for all the wildlife in that particular area. And then we started going into the clear cuts. And there was still, you know, after uh, maybe 10 years after the area had been logged, uh, you could just start seeing the top of the conifer starting to appear. But we had lots of willow, lots of alder growing in those areas, uh, lots of deciduous growth in that area uh, that the moose uh, were venturing into, and there was lots of feed for them. Uh, so you could see lots of that. But we started spraying glyphosate in the mid-1980s, 
to get rid of the deciduous growth to give the conifers more of a chance to get established because that's what the sustained yield growth is all about. And that's when I started seeing the decrease in the feed supply for a lot of the ungulates uh, in the post-harvest areas that uh, had been logged. Steve and I have been out a couple of times hunting and I, you know, you get into a place and yeah, there's a, it's a clear cut, but what I, there are certain, and it's not just licensees, it's there's, there's certain people that let me, let me just hit the pause button on this discussion to say a couple of things. I run, you know, two car dealerships and a significant component of my, of my income is directly related to people working in forestry. So I, I can't afford for there not to be that. I can't afford for us not to have this pipeline go through. I can't afford for them not to greenlight that petrochemical plant here in Prince George. Whatever industry's doing, all of the mines and stuff, I get, but this is a resource economy. That's, that's what we do in Western Canada and particularly in the Northern Latitudes. That's our reality. So I'm, I'm not interested in mothballing or shuttering that industry. But if we're going to have forestry, if we're going to you know, try to move towards a sustainable model that is longer term has got to be farther thinking than five years from now. It's got to be thinking 50 years from now. You know, it's got to be thinking 80 years from now, because if, if you're going to get your son or a relative into to forestry, you got to believe that there's still going to be a forestry business 80 years from now. So we got to make no different than right now in my industry, in the car business, I got more cars than I can sell right now. And General Motors and Ford and stuff, they just closed the factory down. Like, yeah, we're not building anything right now. Why? You got more cars than you need. We're not going to sell that many. Now, on the other side of that, what we've realized, Matt and I are realizing at, our, at the dealership level, is whatever happens on the other side of this, our industry has has to change. I will not need as many people. You know, I was thinking of adding more. I'm not going to be adding more salespeople. I'm going to change the technology that I engage. I am going to change the way I engage customers because my industry is going to have to change significantly. Um, I'm going to have to change the way that I order vehicles. I'm going to have to change the, the pipeline because what we realized going through COVID is we're all exposed, right? You can't have a, you know, you can't have a, a big amount of inventory and then all of a sudden have no income to pay for it, right? You got to make sure you got the right amount of people to handle the volume that you can. I guess what I'm saying to your point, Mike, is, and, and Michael, you said you were, you, you said it very well, you're going towards a cliff. It looks to me like we've known for a while that we were going to get here. We should have started pumping the brakes a long time ago and starting to right-size our business. I understood, you know, like Steve is the one that explained to me, I, like the beetle thing, I didn't know anything about that. So I got my education, thank you for that, Steve. I was road hunting, he explained like the beetle kill and like that, that's what's all going on out here because I was like, wow, they're cutting lots. But then I discovered that when I moved here in 2015, I still thought you guys used chainsaws. Like I, I, <laughs> like I, I still thought like guys that went and they, you know, they climbed up in a tree and they used a chainsaw and I get out here and there's all this processing equipment. And, but I guess that's what happened, right? You, 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 you had all this, you had this fiber that was dying and you got to extract it all, right? You got to do it quickly because it's going to lose its fiber value. It still has value, commercial value. Let's extract it. That's great. So you ramp it up and then that's all gone. Now you're left with the other stuff that uh, I'm assuming the age categories of trees aren't necessarily commercially appropriate. Uh, so we got to start peeling our business back a little bit. So I guess it's just time to take the foot off the gas, you know, re- rethink about how our business is. But I guess I think what we need to do, I think, I, I think there's a good, ex- I think it's a good, uh, I, I guess, quick walk around the outside of the, the, of the issue of, you know, forestry and, and the impacts of industry. But really what, the reason we're having this discussion is because how does that impact wildlife management? So you've got all of this stuff that's happened. So you've got all of these land disturbances and roads and pipelines and 
you know, in mining and demand, you know, like there's, I'm assuming that the, the demand in, in new homes from the 1960s till now went way up. Am I wrong? Because I, go ahead. No, you're right. You know, the demand for uh, the product that BC produced and like we had uh, some of the best fiber, some of the best wood in the world right. that we uh, had here in BC. It was all, uh, all brand new uh, virgin growth timber. Uh, so we cut lots of it and everything was ba- based our, our sustained yield uh, system that we have and the rules that we've had for the past number of years in British Columbia for forestry products has been by volume. So we want to cut uh, 80 million cubic meters worth of wood every year in British Columbia, period, which is the wrong approach. And we also, uh, it, and because it was volume-based, every, all the forest licensees had a volume-based license that, you know, this licensee can cut 10 million, this one can cut 2 million, this one can cut 3 million, uh, another one can cut 500,000, depends on the size of them, and it all accumulates to the 80 million for the province. But it's all over the place. If we had area-based tenures, like we do for guide outfitting, like we do for trapping, right. on my trap line, I can figure out how we're going to have a sustainable yield every year forever um, if I hadn't been impacted by forestry. Uh, we need to look at that for forestry, but we also need to get away from the volume-based process and come up with an ecologically-based forestry system. Right. And, and so that all the other values on the land are taken into consideration at the time the chief ecologist, whoever it might be, determines where we're going to cut and how we're going to cut. Go ahead, Mike. I just want to say something there. So we're sitting in a bubble here and uh, people have a hard time because when you're probably, uh, you can relate right now with the uh, virus going on, sitting at home and uh, <laughs> you're sitting in yeah. a bubble there. But you know, having clients from all over the world, and many of them work in the forest industry. They're from Scandinavia and, and uh, the U.S. and uh, Central Europe, uh, whatever. And we're out there, and I don't have to say anything, and they will bring it up every time. And what they're saying is that whatever they're doing or having to deal with, and, and these people own, own sawmills or, or uh, trucking companies or, or what have you, uh, wood importers and what you know, all kinds of different uh, types of businesses. Um, they all have their comments. At the end of the day, what that does to me, it kind of opens the eyes of opportunities. Uh, so then I go into meetings with forestry or or forest licensees, and we argue about certain practices or whatever. And I have a few suggestions, and here's what they do in this country or that country, and what about this, what about that, right? I mean, we're still burning brush piles. You have got to be kidding me. We're burning money. Everybody knows that, right? So, so, what, so okay, what would be the alternative then? So if, if versus burning them, what, what, what would be the alternative for someone that didn't know? Because to me, before I moved here, I would have thought, okay, well, that's what you do. It's, leave it on the ground for habitat. Well, there's a there, bunch of yeah, different things. Yeah, I, I know that's a thing now. There's, for sure. there's a bunch of different things. So they used to bring them into the mill, right? We used to bring the whole tree in, then the tree was cut uh, at the side uh, by, by the mill, and then it had these big marler looking, uh, what do you call those? Where they burned the, the cutoffs in. Oh, the, um, the beehive burners? Yeah, beehive burners. Yeah, burn, and yeah. then they got made illegal, which was uh, useless because now they're still burning the same stuff just out on the block. So every fall when you get these beautiful sunsets, you know, they come from, <laughs> from the smoke from these uh, brush fires or from these brush piles when they burn them. And everything is in there. So we were just in Europe for a month uh, this winter and we actually toured the country with the chief from the uh, Takla First Nation. And we went and saw two different companies that build a wood gas fire generator. So one is the company Clock, which hunters may know uh, 
not that you use oh, a, Glock, a, a Glock, Glock, yeah. Glock. Yeah. Okay. So not that you know, uh, use a, a handgun for a handgun. hunting, but um, <laughs> yeah. everybody kind of knows what they do. But uh, <laughs> the the guy Gaston Glock uh, in Austria has a factory where they build uh, wood gas fired generators. So we went to tour the factory. Uh, that factory has a, sort of a plug and play system. They're in containers, and one goes next to the other. They 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 power and heat a whole village and two factories in that village, and so it's wood chips. They actually have to buy it. Very expensive. I think it's something like twenty twenty five euros a cubic meter, um, and then they chip it. And it's economical to heat and power. Um, like I said, a whole village and and two factories. Very interesting model. Some of these, uh, the, the other company was called uh, Spannery. Um, I think Kodacha has a unit or three units up there. And um, I think they run their greenhouses on it, a school, uh, a guest house. Wow. And, okay. Yeah. So, so those are actually being used in BC, some of those things yeah, right now? Yeah, the one company is wow. in BC. Uh, Seke Dene, I think, is getting one. And so Takla is uh, going to look at that as well. So there's competition coming. Okay, so just so you're saying the fuel with that you could come from these burn piles, right? Absolutely. Okay, so but hang on, you said leave them for habitat, and Steve had told me that as well. Like you have to leave some of that on the land. And I have friends that uh, that run uh, you know logging operations, and I'd asked him a little bit about burn piles. He said, "Well, no, we have to actually leave those for habitat." Okay, so what is it? You either leave them, you know, I, I know guys that do, I've looked at their block, I've been in their block that said, no, we don't burn those, those are left for habitat. Then I go to another one and there's 30 piles and then they're all burnt like, you know, three weeks later when I go out there. So what, what's the difference? Why, why is one guy leaving them and one guy burning them? And who, why do we not know about, you know, what we can do with them? If they're, if they're burnable or you can use them or make money at them, why wouldn't we do that? So it all depends on your, on your operation you know, and the, and the type of bioclimatic zone that you're in, the type of debris that's left on the ground, all that has uh, uh, to come to bear on that uh, final decision there. I go back to, you know, Michael was talking about uh, all the debris being burned in the beehive burners. That was the sawdust and the chips that were actually from the, the sawmilling operation, and that's where the pellet industry started. Right. Taking all the wood waste from the sawmills and, and uh, turning into wood pellets. They've now expanded into the forest and they're taking whole trees and chipping them, turning into wood pellets. The stuff in the bush, I think, you know, it has accumulated more with, with clear cutting, with the size of machines that we have now. You know, you spend $750,000 on a brand new buncher to go out there and cut a whole bunch of trees down. And they cut everything down in their wake just because these machines are so big. And uh, so they just stack it up and, and uh, burn it. Or they'll leave it for habitat, depending on on. Uh, the so is that is that prescription made by the licensee, or is that made by the who does the site plan? Like who makes that decision? So that'll be their chief forester that lays out that prescription, and it gets signed off by the chief forester and sent over to your local forest office, and Flynn Row will sign it off as well. At okay. the end of the day. Okay. So, okay, that brings up an interesting point. I, I think I've asked this before. I I can't remember. What, I know somebody disagreed when I said this before. I want to revisit this. So Flynn Row. Steve, what does Flynn Row stand for? Let everybody know, just so they know. Forest lands, natural resource op- operations. operations, and they also include yeah. rural development in there. Yeah, rural okay. development in there. Now. So, yeah. the last couple of directors of Flynn Row, which also has our wildlife, like our wildlife operation, is under that. What's the logic? Um, the the last two people that are in charge of it, maybe even three people, are they not foresters first? Yeah, <laughs> you know, it, it goes back to you know back in uh, the early two thousands. They 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 brought everything under this one big ministry. 
And that was one of my, uh, you know, in the report that I put out on getting the balance right. Um, I, my vision was to look at one, um, one office, one ministry that looks after all resource development in the province. And that's where they wanted to go. But forestry was still the mainstay. Sustainable yield. Everything didn't really matter other than sustainable yield and harvest. And uh, so the chief forester was always in there. there. You know, forestry was a predominant role because nothing else had a value on. We don't put value on wildlife. You know, the, the protein value, I was looking, reading about the Swedish experience and Scandinavian experience. Uh, they charge 8 to $10 a pound for a moose if you shoot a moose over there. Right. And, uh, and that's where the value starts coming from. We have to start looking at that in British Columbia here too. How much is our fish worth? You know, when you catch a fish and you go to overweighted to buy a fish or to the local grocery store, what is that worth? What's a chicken worth? And uh, so, and that's renewable every year. So you look at a cattleman's herd, you know, if we have 350,000 cows in British Columbia in the, with the BC cattleman, what is that worth? Well, you know, if you extrapolate that out and look at our, our mule deer, our white-tailed deer, our moose, our caribou, our elk populations, and put that value on that, then we can start competing by sitting at the planning table with forestry, uh, you know, mining and oil and gas are already there because we put a value on minerals. We put a value on oil and gas in the land. The only thing that we don't put a value on is all the other values on the land, all the biodiversity that's out on the land. All we look at is forestry. Okay, so if I have, if I have a ministry that's got, I got the, I got the critters uh, being managed by the same people that are managing the gold and the oil and the waterways, should I not have two separate interests? And then, and then let them kind of fight back and forth to me. Because my concern would be is the oversight. There could be a, there could be a bias oversight in, in how you're administering policy versus if you separated those two things and say, hey, listen, you're in charge of wildlife, okay? You make the decisions on wildlife and you're going to be in charge of industry and you guys are going to have to figure out how those two things work. Because yeah. if, if, I, if I roll those things together, one of those things is going to go to the top, Right depending on who's in charge. And right now, I mean, if it's been a while, but it's been for a while that we've had a forester that's in the head of that ministry. I, I think if you had balanced legislation and balanced policy, uh, you wouldn't see that happen. You can't manage wildlife separately from everything else because that's what got us into the role, uh, into the situation that we have right now. We've managed forestry at the expense of wildlife and all the other biodiversity on the land. And uh, by looking at it, collectively and with the proper guidelines and objectives in place, I think it could be a very successful model. And it wouldn't be, you don't set something up so that it it depends on who is leading that particular organization. You put the infrastructure in place so that it doesn't matter if somebody steps down one day and a new person comes in the next day, that things still have the same fundamental foundation as they move forward. The, the point about all this is, uh, I, I don't know, I mean, we were different before we were in the Minister of Environment, and then we got rolled into uh, Minister of Forest, and then was Flynn Rowan, and now it's Flynn Road. The point is that there is no um, definition of value on, on the things that we care about while we're sitting here in this room, while we're talking. So there's no value put on fish and wildlife. Uh, there's no value put on habitat. It's being talked here and there, and actually when it really hits the road, which is with the caribou and the species at risk comes, which is a threat on the federal level, that's when one of a sudden the provincial government pays attention and says, well, we got to do something because uh, we're about to lose jurisdiction over a chunk of land and uh, we won't like that. Industry won't like that. Nobody will like that. So the, the point we need to get to is we need to uh, figure out what this stuff's worth. And so there's... Uh, Just hang on a second. Steve, 
species at risk, because I think that's important. So you've got a federal act that we're, we talked about this in the fish episode, um, in episode two, but so you've got this federal species at risk act that if, if that comes into effect, you know, all of a sudden you've got a, you've got federal oversight on provincial land and all of a sudden the decision-making ability will be removed from the province, right? Uh, am I wrong? Absol- they could, they absolutely. get to reach past the province, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so so if that can happen and that exists... I've never done it. No. What's that? They've never done it. The Did federal you? government never done it. The, we, we came really close with the caribou uh, yeah. meetings that were going around uh, BC, and uh, it never happened. Mike? Yeah, no, that was the, uh, the federal government is threatening to put an emergency order in to take over the uh, caribou habitat that we have in the province here to protect them. But, you know, I go back to the original argument, and I made it before. If we managed our wildlife and all the species um, for their survival, we wouldn't need a Species at Risk Act. We wouldn't need, you know, managing for one specific wildlife, uh, one species, is no different than looking at forestry and wildlife separately. Because they're all interrelated, you know. You can't, uh, you know, the the redback vole is food for marten, and marten is food for something else, and and uh, you know the 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 aspen trees, uh, the birds nest in it, and the moose eat the aspen trees, and so everything is kind of needed together, and we need to manage ecologically the biodiversity that we have in the province to sustain wildlife populations, to sustain our forestry. Uh, that there's no better water filter and air filter in the world than a forest. And uh, we need to ensure that we maintain them. So we have this framework around uh, how industry manages the land. And now we have, um, l- let's talk a little bit about how, basically how we manage wildlife. Fair to say that wildlife in, in British Columbia, at the least, I, I mean, generally wildlife is managed by the idea of the consumptive use model. Uh, would that be fair, Michael? Oh, I don't know. Don't know what you would call it. They're still looking after grizzly bear. Maybe not as much because it's not a focus. They're not. I don't think they can afford to. We we asked one time, "What's your objective? What's your management objective?" Uh, a leading senior biologist, and he physic. He actually said, "I have to get back to you on that." And a week later, you know, we talked again, and and uh, he said, "The objective is to make sure it doesn't hit species at risk, which is basically going extinct or close to." So. Like caribou in some of those places, um, they're they're not hunted anymore. They're not a, for for consumptive use. They're they're being managed. Um, you know, we we're building pens. We're doing predator control uh, for a lot of money now. There's maybe some habitat work. I'm not sure. So I don't I don't know. The other problem is that wildlife managers um, they don't get all the levers. They get one, which is uh, regulations, and that. But okay, yeah, but but hold on. Regulations are all about consumptive use. Wildlife is the basic, the, the core, the megafauna that we're managing, right? Songbirds and all of those other things. So I, I know that they're being managed for. They're being considered, right? But to your point, obviously they're not, I'm pointing at Mike Morris. To, to Mike's point about industry, I, I don't know what they're being managed for. But it all, the, the, the bulk of it, if regulations are the thing, if that's where we look to manage wildlife, then really we're talking about consumption, which is all about demand, Right. That's how, that's how I see it, and I, I think I see it that way because that's how it was explained to me, I think, by you. So you've got demand for guides, right? 
Well, that, that's my, my wish, is that we actually uh, um, recognize the demand by First Nations that is actually a, a legal right. right, that we manage for demand from resident hunters that want to go out, especially right now, and go on, <laughs> and the guides that need it uh, to make a living. And so if, if that demand was ever captured, uh, then we could put a value on it and say, okay, there's a value on these species, uh, on, on, on biodiversity and having wildlife and, and fish and what have you. Because um, now we get something to manage for. You know, the, uh, going back to Mike's uh, discussion here, or Michael's on uh, wildlife managers not having enough levers to pull. Um, I would say it's the same as having somebody working in your shop. You take all their tools away and you give them a crescent wrench and a screwdriver and uh, yeah. look after the vehicles. And that's basically what our wildlife managers have been left with. Yeah, if, they, if they, you take away the screwdriver and left with just a crescent wrench. Yeah. Yeah, well, it, yeah, what you're really saying is what we can fix is oil changes. Yeah, we, we can do oil changes, but we it, can't do anything else. As right? long as the filter's not stuck on. Yeah, exactly. Light-duty maintenance on our wildlife. So uh, I, th- I think it's important for people to understand, though, that if we're going re- to reference regulations, is that's the mechanism that they use the most in terms of regulating wildlife. What are, Steve, let's talk about all the things that, uh, what, what are all of the things that would impact a wildlife population? No, there's, there's so many. There's... Uh, Hunters, hunters. There, there's uh, unregulated hunting. There's predators. There's but, vehicle collisions. But everything. interaction with tourism, because if we're gonna, because consumptive use is just that's us. But then there's also bear demand. Viewing. What's that? Bear viewing. Yeah. Wildlife, wildlife. Wildlife viewing becomes part of that, right? Yeah. So all of those things are. Uh, and you said uh, trains, trains, vehicle collisions, vehicle collisions. So you're looking at about eleven between eleven and fifteen thousand animals or collisions a year. I think in BC, I don't know what the actual number is. I think it's somewhere close to that. Um, so there's all of these things that impact the wildlife population. Then there's the the impact on habitat. There's a lot of, I mean, it it's not just regulations that they that they use, but it is funny though because I think that's the one lever that they can pull the easiest. Because how do they like? Is there you'll know better, Mike? Is there what? How do you manage for CN uh, killing moose on the tracks? Like yeah. how do, how do we manage for that, Steve? Steve, you should you should ship in on this when you get a minute. Oh, that's exactly right. That's been a big bone of contention for a lot of folks uh, right across the country here. And and I don't know how you manage for that other than insisting that some mitigation measures be put in place with overpasses and fencing and and wider right-of-ways and whatnot so that the engineers have a chance to see them. Uh, Plowing, uh, you know, wider uh, furrows through the snow along the tracks here so the animals have some place to go as the train goes by. I don't know. But I go back to... Just an example, we're talking about what wildlife managers can do. I look at Fisher uh, as a trapper. There was a report put out here a couple of years ago by the Forest uh, Practices Board condemning some practices in the caribou for, for annihilating Fisher habitat uh, throughout the Nasco and the Quinell timber supply area right. uh, to the point where, the, where Fisher have been pretty much extirpated from the area here, all from tree harvesting. Uh, today we have the province that is going to red list Fisher and prohibit trapping uh, because the fish are disappearing, but they still haven't pulled the lever back on forestry to say leave some fisher habitat for fisher. Now, fisher need mature wood. It's got to be 100, 200 year old wood and mixed forest with deciduous as well right. as everything else in there. So here we have them red listing fisher, but nothing has changed on the forestry side. Is that so? Will that scale to the um, to the federal act, or is that going to be a provincial? Is that just the provincial that, wildlife act? That's provincial. So it won't. You're going to red list it provincially, but that's not enough to red to, to, to get it onto. Uh, would that would that ever be visited on a uh, on a COSAWIC meeting? 
Well, it may. It depends. You know, I, I think there's still uh, some uh, significant fisher populations throughout the rest of Canada. Okay. And, and whatnot. So British Columbia... It's it's a problem for but, us. But we but I mean that legislation doesn't necessarily be, mean across Canada because you can have wolf populations or we've got salmon populations because you're using that LPU thing that local population unit where it's an issue right you don't have to have it you know so it's at risk of being extinct across the the country across the province you can have because when you were talking about the caribou Michael it's not all caribou there's some very specific LPUs or uh, local population units that are affected that can bring that legislation into well, I know enough to be dangerous, so I'm just going to say what <laughs> I was told. Um, and I think it's uh, the species or subspecies. And uh, in the caribou story, it was that subspecies of caribou that became threatened. So there's other caribou in other places, but they, they belong to different subspecies. Steve, did you figure out, talk a little bit about uh, your story about the train to Jasper? <laughs> Off the, it's an, it, this it, is an unknown source. Let's just clarify that. But it, let's just say it's an unknown source from the rail industry. Unknown source contacted me a couple of years ago on Facebook and said that uh, he worked for CN and he was pretty disappointed in the fact that they didn't have any mandatory reporting for moose. And uh, he, he said officially under his fake name and off the record, I still don't know who he is, but some sort of supervisor. He said there was something like 400 moose killed between September and December on the stretch between Jasper and Smithers. Yeah, I've heard the same thing. Back when I was with the BC Trappers Association, um, I think it was in 2005, our local approach, CN, locally here in Prince George, to see if we could get any of the carcasses that show up from the rail kills. And at that time, there was reported to have been 450 moose killed uh, between here and Jasper just in that one winter. And I, I, I think those, popular, or the, those numbers have probably gone down as the population has decreased right across the province here. I, re, I, I remember driving up to Fort Nelson in, uh, you know, about 15 years ago, and you could count uh, 50, 60 dead moose carcasses on the side of the highway going north, and another 50, 60, 70 coming south on the other side of the highway. When was this? Uh, this was about 15 years ago. Yeah, you missed it. I missed <laughs> <laughs> Boy, did I get my timing wrong. So, okay. So I'm a wildlife manager. Boom. Let's pretend I'm a wildlife manager. Uh, that's Don's new job. So here's all the things that I've got in the mix. I have got to manage. I have to manage a wildlife population and a whole bunch of them. Those that are consum- uh, consumed and those that are not. I have to, I have to manage them to not be extinct. If we're, if I'm being accurate, if if we if we frame that that uh, perspective that was shared with you, I mean, an un- unofficially shared. Yeah. I just have to make sure that they never hit zero. Sure. I don't have a clear objective for it. I have to make sure that I, I've been in this room when we talked about led, uh, hunting legislation changes for moose in this room fil- filled with hunters. And we talked about having like maybe taking the calf season away just so that we could get a little rebound. And there was wildlife managers in this room and I felt awful for them yeah. because the, the hunters, there were hunters in this room yelling at them because they were more concerned about their opportunity than the one hour presentation they did. They said, yeah, like we got like a 70 to 80% decline in moose. And the guys are like, well, you can't be closing the calf season because like, I, I, I there's no way, man, I got to get my moose. Well, there's no moose to have. Like, so I'm a wildlife manager and I have all of, I have all of this. Then on top of all of that, there are things that I have to do. Like, it's like the caribou thing. 
okay, well, you know, now the federal government, let's just look recent, recent events, federal government's looking in our, our window saying, hey, listen, you guys have an obligation to look after these caribou. And it's like, okay, well, I guess we got to, what's the problem? Well, we got some, lots of wolves. That's been a problem. Okay, well, let's go kill some wolves. And then they get all of the public brain damage for killing the wolves. They get all of the brain damage from all of us as hunters saying, where's our opportunity? Then they get all of the brain damage that they're going to get from industry saying, hey, listen, like, you know, we, got, we have things we got to do. We got pipelines and, and trees and all of that other stuff. Then they get all this other brain damage from people that don't live anywhere near any of this stuff saying, you know, we really would like to make sure that we have, you know, a, a, healthy, uh, a healthy population of all these things just so that we know that they're there. They have all of these competing things. The reality is, is if, if, if I'm that wildlife manager, what can I really do? Like, what can I manage for? I don't have an objective. If, if, I, if, if we're being, if we're looking at it and, and we're saying that there's this impact from FERPA on the, the Forestry Ranges and Forestry Range and Practices Act, I have that one, what's, can you read that contingency? Without unduly reducing the supply of timber from British Columbia's forests. Okay, so I can do things as long as it doesn't do that. And then I'm going to have whatever, what, all of the other values, there's First Nations considerations, all of these things that are, are in my midst. And the, really, the only thing that I can do, the only go ahead or pull back, the only lever I can find is for consumptive use. That's the only one I can do anything about. I go, okay, well, we'll hunt more, hunt less. The mortality on these animals, we will control one way, right? Because what do they do for habitat restoration? Somebody tell me what we do for habitat restoration. What's the objective for rehabilitating habitat? Michael, what's the last big uh, habitat rehabilitation program in Babine in your area? Well, you know what? That's the funny thing too. In Dominica, in some places, they were actually doing burns for habitat, but only in a park. Get this. When you go to 7B, which is just north of here, or neighbors, you're not allowed to burn anything in the park. They only did burns outside the park, and they haven't done those for many years. Provincial park, right? Yeah, provincial yeah, yeah, park. Provincial park yeah. So the, the, these are uh, range uh, burns and, and uh, habitat burns. So nature likes fire uh, when it's done right, and, and we've been putting them out. So the problem is we got all this fuel sitting there now ready to go, and if we got a big hot summer, we're in trouble. Are they banned? Can, like, just so I know, are, are, are prescribed burns banned as a mechanism? Or are they just discouraged because it's a loss of fiber? No, they're still prescribed burns. You know, we're not doing near as many as we used to before, but there's still prescribed burns in various areas. It's, it's weather dependent. It's, you know, it depends on a lot of things, but they're still around. Okay. Yeah, they, but, uh, didn't they just close them down for this and next year, though, with the caribou? I haven't, I wasn't aware of that. Okay. Yeah. There's, there, there's almost none going on. I mean, it's yeah. very little, Mike. They're, they're, they've been fighting up in 7B. They had a big plan. They're, I remember seeing big, big maps 10 years ago um, where they said, okay, let's all uh, figure this out because there's a uh, uh, range out there, right, for horses and stuff. And, and so they were, they were all put on pause and hold. And there was actually a huge chunk of HCTF money spent uh, along East Williston to get a plan going, get everything going, and, and the outfitter was a partner in that, and uh, got everything ready, ready, ready to go, and it got all stalled. Um, all that money was wasted, and I think it was like a half a million dollars of money that HCTF had invested in that. So those are the dollars they take from, from our license sales, and uh, they were not applied. 
was just a waste. At, at the end of the day, um, in uh, Skina, uh, six south, there is some hinging. There was some hinging project just, going on. Just for people that are listening, uh, just explain what hinging is as a mechanism for habitat yeah, restoration. Yeah, so what they've done uh, in these places is uh, deciduous growth, and I think it's uh, certain types of willows, and I haven't done them personally, but I have friends and colleagues uh, out on uh, Babine Lake that have done quite a bit of that. And so they, they start cutting uh, a tree that's too high for moose to reach, for to browse on, and they cut them um, half through or three quarters through and then bend them over and break them, and then you get all these fresh shoots coming off, so lots of food. Those are things. As a matter of fact, uh, we send an email to Minister Donaldson asking, instead of uh, trying to find money to pay guides uh, uh, not working, maybe we could fund some uh, habitat work with uh, money and get us out on the land and, and do some stuff and, and be productive, right, instead of being paid. So just, uh, okay, so uh, I'm going to stay on this habitat piece because that's the, I, I get, so we got this lever that we pull back and forth. You, you can hunt more, you can hunt less, Right. But how does that grow wildlife? I mean, it it does in it does in a way, but is it, if habitat? We can all agree that habitat and all of these things that we talked about with industry and, and resource extraction, if that's a if that's the biggest issue, what's the plan from a provincial standpoint? Is there a plan, and how how many different things do we put in play to rehabilitate habitat other than trying to plant more trees that we can cut later on? So, like, what, what's the habitat restoration model? Like, wh- where is that in all of this, or, or is it? I think we got to go to Jeff Werner's uh, study that he did uh, where he's talking about thinning out some of the plantations now to allow some of the deciduous growth to get in there, uh, w- which is, uh, you know, a major food source for the, the ungulates and for the birds and everything else. Um, you know, habitat restoration, uh, there's going to be a lot of that necessary over the next while, but we need to change the dial so that the habitat isn't totally destroyed in the forest harvesting process. Um, you know, they leave wildlife trees, uh, but when you have a, you know, three or four big snags uh, sticking up in a, in a hundred or 150 hectares, there's not an animal that I know is going to run and, and use that tree for denning or for nesting purposes whatsoever. You know, Jeff Werner, uh, that, I, I think that's his name, wasn't it, Michael? Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the report that he did, it's, uh, you can view it at the UNBC website. I think that was very informative. And funny enough that I found some research from 1990 that said the same thing. But yet we've never, we have never slowed down in, in the harvesting. Uh, we haven't changed our practices when it comes to clear cut and, and looking after some of the, the feed and the, the biodiversity that's on that clear cut there. Uh, if we've known this for 30 years, um, why haven't we changed? Well, we haven't changed because of, because of FERPA and the regulations. The Habitat, the, the Habitat Conservation Trust Fund, HCTF, is what Michael was talking about. So that's uh, funded. Steve, how's that funded? Mostly with the little tax off your hunting license and tags. Right. Well, all license, outfitters license, export Absolutely. license. We pay it yep. on every license that we get. Um, and then they also get funding from that's earmarked uh, from mm. other sources. And, and there may be some uh, um, like Williston uh, Wildlife uh, yeah, donations. donations and yeah. stuff like that. Uh, fines, I think, from court yep. get pointed there. Um, so they have money in different pots and then they apply that and, and every... I think the trappers and the resident hunting community mm-hmm. and the outfitters they all have a seat there. And then there's some people that are appointed and government is sitting on there and they make the decisions That's based right. on science. You know, what's funny is um, on our fishery side, 
if we want to do things, whether it's our hatchery program, stream rehabilitation, when we're looking for grants and things that we can apply, get, apply for money to do stuff. If you look at f- trying to fix a river or a stream uh, or deal with a fish stock, there's a lot of programs that are easy to access and things that you can do that don't even necessarily cost money. They just take volunteerism. I'm at the end of like six months of other than hinging. I'm look, I'm at the end of six months of trying to find a land base rehabilitation program that I can get volunteers to go and do. Tell me how much it's going to cost. I have contacted the ministry. I've had some discussions with, with, with people that are in forestry that are friends of mine. And they said, but you got to get the, like they, they all said, great idea, but you got to get the, you're going to have to get the licensee to agree to it mm-hmm. because they're not going to, they don't want you to start to develop a whole bunch of habitat if they're going to have to come back in and, you know, relog or spray or whatever they're going to do. And I mean, but they, they all thought really good idea. And I said, I'm not talking like, I'm not trying to do a million hectares here. I'm just, you know, if I could go into a bunch of parcels with some volume, it's, it's been really hard for me to find out what to do. And then I look south of the border and I look into the U.S., you know, I see all of these uh, nonprofits or not-for-profit organizations, but even states. I look in, you know, I look in Idaho Fish and Game, Montana Fish and Game. I mean, they actually, I mean, it's part of what they're doing all the time. I, I, I don't know if we do that or we don't do that. I mean, if we do, and I'm not giving them credit, I mean, I'd like them to, you know, uh, call, email, uh, send me hate mail, whatever, that I got this wrong. But I don't see us publicly showing what we're trying to do to rehabilitate, you know, habitat for, for wildlife. And I'm, a, I'm in a volunteer organization. We'd love to go out and do that stuff. But I haven't been able to find anybody to tell me what to do or where to do it. I mean, it's, that's a frustrating part of this is that there's a desire for us from within the hunting uh, and the outdoor community to go and do that. And it would be even non-hunters. It would be easy to get non-hunting organizations to help us with habitat rehabilitation. And we could easily fundraise for that, right? It's the opposite, actually. They go in and they uh, cut down... Um, areas that have uh, high deciduous or spray them and then so they can plant pine because it's all linked about back to the cutting permits. I Again, it's one of those fields where I don't know enough about. But the fact is that the Taltan First Nations have done some stuff. Uh, the Wild Sheep Foundation has done some awesome stuff, more around disease and some caribou work. Um, there's been some elk uh, projects uh, the Kootenays have done uh, a few things. Uh, I think the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance has done some work, but really, as long as it doesn't touch anything of that sustainable yield uh, or whatever it's called, maximum sustainable yield on, on fiber, if you impact fiber, um, I think it's off the table. Yeah, I know uh, the Wild Sheep Society, just uh, in partnership with a couple other nonprofits, bought a chunk of land down in Granby, but it had to be private so uh, they could actually do something meaningful on the landscape. So it it's, it's an interesting process to try and get buy-in from uh, all the right resources to... Uh, to yeah, and stakeholders and, and... I mean, right. uh, what I found, um, you know, that's been conspicuous, and, and, I, and I mean this in a really positive way, a lot of the best initiatives um, that, that I find for wildlife, for fish and wildlife remediation is actually coming with our First Nation partnerships, whether it's uh, Carrier Sakani, you know, some of our discussions and with Seike and, and, and people like that, Takla, uh, Teltan... It's there's great engagement and a, like a, like a sincere uh, desire to try to do something to to try to fix what's going on, you know. And I I just you know I I hope that 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 thinking can get visited you know to our ministry at, at on some level. Here's a question for everybody. I want everybody to answer this question. Let's take a, pick pick a pick a species. Moose. Everybody want moose? Okay, let's pick moose. 
where would you, where, where do you think moose are at and where do you think moose should be? Like, where do we think the moose population is at and where do you want it to be? And I haven't been here long enough because apparently I missed it. So to Michael, <laughs> tell me where, tell me where it's, where is it at in your mind and where would you like it to be? I'm going to go back to what I said before, which is um, first we have to establish what the demand would be. So if we want to have a sufficient amount of moose for First Nations needs, if we want to have sufficient amount of moose in, in a particular area for resident hunting opportunity, and, and not just a license and you don't see anything, a real opportunity with animals there. Um, if you want to have a viable guide outfitting, economically viable guide outfitting sector, then establish that number and whatever that number is, uh, that should be your density objective that managers and decision makers would have to manage too and vet everything through and put these objectives all up side by side. The same with forestry and other things. For, forestry, I think, is missing the boat because they should have a long-term job objective so that you have sustainable jobs for the future and not just you know high profit margins right now. And um, no, I don't, <laughs> I, I don't know about right now. No, not today. <laughs> not today. I, I, I know what you mean. Short but, term, yeah. right? But long story short, that the, 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 I can't give you numbers, but um, okay, you- hope, but okay, hang on a second though. I, I get all of that. You've been doing this for 33 years. In the last 33 years, has there been a moment when you said, if you look back on 33 years of doing this in, in your areas, is there a moment where you were like, if it could just be like this, year like 1979 or what okay that's that's older uh, uh, i'm not sure. i'm not sure. I, I shouldn't age you unfairly but, pick, but what what's the waypoint what's the waypoint where would you want to be um i guess it would be a density number that you would have to pick so the year uh would be in the 90s uh, i would say early 90s at least that's what it was and, and what tell me what that so tell me why that what was that like oh boy so we would have a client with a guide, uh, and so maybe we would have six hunters in camp. Each one would go out, and in a 10-day trip, we would see an average between 20 and 60 moose per hunter. What? Um, between 20 and 60 moose per hunter in a 10-day trip. Um, you do the same thing in the same area right now. <laughs> 20 to 60? Yeah. I can't see two in 10 days. It, it was so... I don't know what word to use uh, special. Looking, no kidding. Looking, looking back now that we actually went 100% traditional archery because that way we could book more clients. But we almost uh, overshot our, our quota back then, even being very, yeah, no. You would, you would have opportunities every other day or every day where you had a bull answer and he'd be coming in and you would turn down, you know, something or bad angle or what have you or something in the way. And almost everybody killed with a stick bowl. No way. Yeah. Okay, Mike Morris. Well, yeah, um, I, I would say I'd go back to the late 1980s, and uh, you know, 88, 89, 90, somewhere in there. We could go out. Uh, six of us could go out, and all six of us would have a moose within the first uh, three or four days. And uh, then the rest of the time, you'd you'd call moose in, you know. And it was I'd take my little guys with me when they were just little kids, and and uh, I'd call moose in. And they would come in so close, you could see the bloodshot eyes, and you could hear them sniffing and snorting, and and uh, it was an exciting time for the kids. You didn't shoot it; you just called it in to, to just for the a, sake of just for the sake of it. We'd see, yeah, yeah, you know, and driving from uh, from town here out to my trap line and out to uh, where I hunted there, uh, you would come across the remnants of you know not unusual to see 12, 20 kills alongside the road um, on your way out to hunt. Leh's back then. 
Uh, LEHs came in towards the mid 1980s, uh, from my recollection. So sometimes you didn't get a, you know, somebody always had a draw, maybe two or three draws that year. But even if you didn't, you would still call them in just just for the the pure pleasure of looking at it. Today, it, it, you know, in the wintertime, I would drive out to my trap line and I would see hundreds of tracks along the road in the snow uh, back and forth. And I would see live moose on the hoof. I'd see dead ones from the wolves. Uh, today, I don't see any tracks going back and forth to, to my trap line. If I look at the Scandinavian model in Sweden and, uh, and uh, Norway, um, where they just about shot every moose that was in the country there 100 years ago, Today they're harvesting eighty to hundred thousand moose a year. Yeah, and on the same landmass that British Columbia has, that's where I'd like to see us come back to. Just somewhere like there, yep. Stevie. I can't compete with stories like that. Wow, <laughs> um, <laughs> no kidding. I, I I can speak back to two thousand nine, two thousand ten. My first year here, I I managed to get a, a spike bull within fifteen minutes of home, and that was quite the experience. And yeah, I've called in bulls since then, uh, but not to the extent of seeing twenty to sixty in ten days. It's I in the last 10 years, I've seen 10, 15 in a season. And then last year, as you'd know, you were with me. Uh, yeah. 30 days in, I had a bull draw and we had one going. We heard him. Uh, Didn't see him though. We, we heard him splashing and grunting yep. and bashing the trees. And he was within 100 yards of us in the swamp, but we could not get him to show. So he, he knew something was up. And if uh, I could go go to anywhere that shows a stable population. I've got a document here from 2017. And the most stable population in British Columbia, do you, do you know where, where, where do you think that would be? Was it, was it, in, no, Mike Morris is pointing to Prince George. No. Oh, the Almanica. Vancouver Island. What? The population of 10 to 20 estimated is the stable one. 10 to 20 what? Moose. What? Yeah. On Vancouver Island. On Vancouver Island. That's what this document in front of me is showing me. And they consider that stable? They consider that stable. It's hey, good news, though. Michael, it's not at zero, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> that's a win. Yeah, Amanika was declining. Peace was stable to declining. Caribou, stable to declining. Thompson, stable to declining. Lower Mainland, stable to declining. The stable population was Vancouver Island and the Okanagan. At 20. At 20. At 20. So I'll, I'll just, I'm going to just frame this as a guy that's never, I, I didn't live here. So I move here and I pick, you know, I, I come to Prince George and before I move here, I do all this research and I'm looking at, you know, lots of articles and hunting pages and there's all this discussion about moose and there's, you know, wolverines and grizzly. And there's just, there's this whole, like, to me, it's like, I, I must've felt like Lewis and Clark probably did, you know, when they got to the, to the, to the great plains, you know, and I was like, oh my gosh, I mean, and I'm in a I'm in from Saskatchewan. Like we got you know hundreds of thousands of white-tailed deer. We've got moose. We've got elk. And I never have a problem seeing animals. Never ever ever have a problem seeing animals. But I think I'm coming to the promised land. This is going to be magical. I can tell you. I mean this with with all sincerity. I've been here for five years. I I have seen more moose in four days in Saskatchewan hunting than I've seen in the five years I've lived here. I mean, there, some of you have seen some viral videos of 30 or 40 moose while they're combining in Saskatchewan. I've seen that, right? I, 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 I drive sometimes thousands of kilometers in the course of a month, uh, you know, when I'm really hitting the bush hard in the wintertime and even in bear season. And I'm telling you, I, I don't see anything. It's what, shocking to me. What's a non-resident requirement for moose in Saskatchewan? Ask, <laughs> yeah. Asking for a friend. Yeah, yeah, asking for a friend. Yeah, they don't, they don't do that there. So that's where we got to. 
when we did our, when we were talking about uh, salmon in our last episode, we talked about things like species at risk, right? So you have this legislation, you have legislation, you have this framework that says, okay, well, you know, we have to protect these animals, right? Because we're, we're not just protecting them to have them. We're also protecting all the consumptive use people, the people that are on the other side of those things, the tourism and all of those We're you know, we want wildlife for all of those values. So for salmon, you have this, like it's threatened or it's endangered or it's extinct, right? And we have salmon populations that have passed all of those and nothing was done. And then Dustin pointed out that there's much like the FERPA Act, there's this, there's this component that would have to be enacted in the Species at Risk Act. If something was that bad, and I'm not saying there are, that everything in BC is that bad, but let's, let's use caribou or moose right now. If in those, for those salmon, if something is that bad, you would, if you pulled the lever and said, okay, we're going to implement species at risk in the Fraser because Chinook are almost gone, right? The consideration, the, the language says to prevent them from all harm. And what that would require is that fisheries managers from DFO would have to limit access to the river, the waterway, resource, everything, wherever those salmon, and as long as those salmon are believed to be in the river, Nothing else can be, you cannot be doing anything else. You can't fish them on the ocean. You can't have boats in there. You can't have recreational activity. You can't do anything. That river is just, all that water can do is flow. And anything else you want to do with that river, you can't. Because of the economic consequence that that creates, there's no chance that they ever do that. So, you know, I I guess there's some parallels in how that federal legislation gets enacted. All, All you need to do is take a look at Steelhead and the Thompson. 100%. 100%. They, yep. They've had less than 100 fish the last few years, and they will not list them as Sarah. You know, you look at what we're going through in British Columbia right now with the, the spring freshet, all the flooding that we're seeing in the caribou, and, and uh, the, the entire province is going to be uh, facing this. The, the freshet used to peak in June. You know, back when I was a young fella in the, you know, in the 60s and 70s uh, and whatnot, the spring freshet was always in June. You'd expect it all the time. Uh, now we have it in April. And if you, you know, I spend a lot of time flying over this province and you have a look at the amount of white that you see in the middle of winter um, without any treetops poking through that whatsoever. There's no shelter, there's no shade, there's nothing sheltering that from the sun. And that stuff melts so quickly and it just flushes all our streams out uh, very early in the season now. Uh, And that's very decimating to steelhead and salmon populations that we have. Right. The mature force canopy, and and I can find areas in my trap line that demonstrate this to me, the mature force canopy has to be at least 50, 60, 70 years old before it's providing enough shade to slow down the melt and, uh, and keep that snow on the ground around the trees underneath for a longer period of time and it mitigates the, uh, the, the freshette that we see uh, that's so devastating here right now. So that, that's another impact as a result of the massive harvesting that we've done, particularly over the last 20 years. Wow. Yeah, I, I didn't know that until, as you pointed out, the, I always thought spring freshette was normally June-ish is what my understanding was when you told me that it was in April. I mean, that was surprising. Uh, okay, so we've got, <laughs> I feel bad for wildlife managers. And I, I really do because I, I, I don't I, I don't think... I think we go back to they they got a crescent wrench and, and a screwdriver. They do not have a they do not have a full toolkit. And I think maybe as a hunting community, we need to take a look at that. And that's part of why we wanted to do this podcast today is we wanted to talk a little bit. We we sometimes get frustrated that we don't have opportunity, right? And we fight so much amongst ourselves as a hunting community 
or a fishing community, but our access to the resource, right? And well, I, I want my opportunity. We fight more about the opportunity than we, we fight to grow the resource, right? Or to say, what are all of the things that are causing this? Like, what's causing us to get here? Well, we, you know, it's not just industry. It's, uh, it's you know, industry, um, you know, we cut trees and, and, and build pipelines and do all of that stuff. But what we haven't done is get land managers and wildlife managers. We're not really giving them tools, resources, or even funding to go back and fix some of that, right? Everybody sort of, we, we, can all concede, we can all see what's happening, but all we're really doing, we've made this framework that wildlife management is really about witnessing decline. It's not about mitigation. And, and that's not their fault. That's, I don't want this to come off like this is their, it's not their fault, right? It's under their watch, but I don't, I think to be fair to them, they don't, they're not really in a position to, to make the, the necessary changes. Because in that conversation that you had with the unknown senior wildlife biologist, when we asked him the question, what would you do to get, wildlife populations back his exact response to us was what levers do i get to pull he said if i can only pull the only one that they give me um you're going to get what you get if you let me pull all the levers that we need he said we can fix everything we don't need to study a thing we don't need to do anything else we have all of the levers all of the tools and he said and that and he actually said which was pretty cool he said, and we can do all of that and still have industry and still let them be profitable and let them be successful and people have jobs and get wildlife back to where it was 20 or 30 years ago. He said, but the reality is, is we, we're not in a position to do that. They will not let us make those decisions. So I, I think that's important. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read this because I thought this was interesting. When we look at wildlife management, we look at its history. And just in terms of the thinking, when we look at a landscape and we look at a wildlife population and we think about guys like Theodore Roosevelt and, you know, when they looked out and they said market hunting is, is wiping out all of our populations, right? And we got to, we have to restrain ourselves. We got to fix this thing, you know? You take a look back. So I got to read this. This is out of uh, the, a book called The North American Conservation Model. One of the earliest written policies was recorded. This is of wildlife management. was recorded by Marco Polo, who noted in his diaries that Kublai Khan had ordered, and this is in the, in the, in the 1200s, that Kublai Khan had ordered that there be no hunting wildlife from March through October, the breeding period, and that for preferred species, food plots would be established, a winter feeding program would be maintained, and landscape cover would be managed. So Kublai Khan, Genghis Khan, these Mongols raiding across, uh, there's somebody looked out and said, I like to hunt, I like to fish, these people, we, we eat this stuff. Uh, we need to, to do this. Marco Polo thought it was so fascinating. He wrote it down. They were doing that in the 1200s. They were looking and saying, we need to fix, you know, fix understory and, and manage grays and make sure we're managing wildlife. If we want to continue to do this, if we're going to, if we're a, you know, if we're a roving band, where if a, uh, like a migratory population of people and we want to, you know, be traveling around with these game herds, we also have to manage them if we're going to live off of them. That's in the 1200s, right? Here we are. It's a long time later. And not, not, not that, I, I think those lessons are still there, right? For sure. I, I think we all know that. I don't think we're, nobody's asking, we don't, do we need to reinvent the wheel? No, there needs to be a will. Uh, I think there needs to be a will from the people that are actually going to say, you know what, change that. And I think what we need to do is reach out to the forest industry and, and, and the forest workers and say, you know what, uh, is also in the best interest of having a sustainable uh, uh, sector or industry with sustainable jobs for your kids and grandkids. Because if we don't start to look at that, um, I think we're all going to be uh, in, a, in a pretty bad place very soon. 
I agree with that, Mike. And, and, but we have to change. We can't do forestry the way we have done it over the last 50, 75 years. The types of machinery we have, the technology that we have, uh, that we take advantage of, is, is far surpassing our ability to grow the tree in the first place. Yep. I, I just look at a, a local area here in, in the vicinity. Um, we, we have a, a small operation on one side of the road that cuts about 6,000 cubic meters of wood every year and employs 10 people. And they make pretty good money. On the other side of the road, you've got a mill that consumes 800 to 900,000 cubic meters of wood per year. Uh, seven guys on a shift, uh, double shifting, and uh, you know, paying pretty good wages over there. But the disparity is significant. And uh, I think we have to have a look at that and maybe look at these smaller models. It employs lots of people. They make a pretty good living. living uh, some of them, I noticed, are driving brand-new Chevy pickups uh, sitting in the yard there. There's a few Fords in there, too. Yeah, unfortunately for those yeah. Fords, yeah. But okay, so, yeah, I'll live with but, it. But I think we have to change how we do. We, we're going to have forestry forever in British Columbia because that's what we have. We've got forests here. But if we do it on an ecological uh, basis rather than a volume basis, uh, there'll be far more value added at the end of the day. There's this great quote I wanted to share with you guys. Val Geist wrote this. It says, history is important. It serves as a vaccine against bad ideas. And <laughs> I read that while we were, I was doing show prep for this, and I, I actually laughed out loud when I read it. You know, and, and in the midst of a COVID world where we're, we're looking for a vaccine to get our, 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 our life back in order, and we have one, like history is that. We, we can look back at all of the mistakes that we made. And really what we're doing um, in our in industry and when we're, what we're doing on the land is exactly what we were doing at the, at the end of the 19th century. Um, we're doing it differently. So now we're not killing buffalo. Now, now what we're doing is we're extracting heavily from a land that can't support it, right? And what I think... Mike Morris, I think you're the new Teddy Roosevelt. I think that's what's happening here. <laughs> so Mike, Mike Morris is going to become the next, uh, the, the next Teddy Roosevelt, you know, or, or, uh, or, or uh, Clifton. Uh, no pressure whatsoever. No, no pressure. But I think, but that's what we're getting to, you know, and I think it's good if, is if you can kind of, you can lift your head up and say, hey, we got to, we got to fix something right now. We got a, we got a real problem in our midst. I think that that level of self-awareness, I mean, and it's tough for everybody to hear, right? It's always tough. When, you know, for industry, if there are people in industry that listen to this podcast, you know, it, it, this isn't about wretched villainy. This is just about, okay, like, you know, we get it. You know, you're, uh, you're in business to be in business. I'm, I'm a business person. I get that. I have employees that they, I, but we need you in business for longer than five months. We need you in business for the next 50 to a hundred years. And you, we've got to believe you've got a plan to be here on the landscape to do that. There are trees that will be cut, Right there's gas, there's oil, there's gold, there's, there's all kinds of things. But on, on the other side of that, this is the biodiversity part. And where I want to take the conversation is we got to talk about the money part. And Mike's going to jump up and Mike's going to say moose don't eat money. And we're going to get into that right away. But I, but I, I think it's important that, that we, we recognize that we're in a position right now where just like COVID, you've got a problem in your midst and it's going to change everything that happens after. There's no way the world goes back. Everybody keeps saying that we wanted to get back to normal. That whatever that, whatever was normal prior to, you know, January of 2020, that's over because there's no version of our life that gets back to completely that way again. And that's kind of, I think where we're, we're at right now with wildlife. It's broken. We have a, a steady decline in fisheries, in, in ungulate populations, in the songbirds, you know, in Saskatchewan, when I go out hunting, 
One of the things that's always conspicuous is like chickadees and the noise of the forest. There's a noise and there's birds in the morning and there's birds in the, in the late part of the evening. And when I'm out here, I hear sometimes a crow. I don't hear a thing, like nothing. And until Mike Morris pointed that out, like the, the songbird population loss, and I was reading some of the, there's, there's, just been, there's been lots of discussion uh, and there's been some discussion papers, you know, around that in BC and, and parts of Alberta. But it, I actually paid attention to it. Steve and I were out lynx hunting and I'm like, it's, it's too quiet, right? Whoever would have thought. And that's where we're at right now. We don't even have songbirds. So forget just the animals that we want to hunt. We got a serious problem. I think we're in a position to fix it. But fixing everything costs money. Michael Schneider, you have a saying. You say moose don't eat money. Steve, there was a big debate about the dedicated funding model. Some people love it. Some people hate it. I'm going to let Steve talk about what he loves about it. And then, Michael, you're going to tell me what you hate about it. <laughs> this could get fun. Here we- <laughs> <laughs> okay, go. <laughs> Michael wants to jump in. Steve, go ahead. Uh, basically, uh, it, it all boils down to we, we know, we, we've talked about it over and over and over, that to, to fix these things and to create these levers, it costs money. And if there's money coming in, something like the Pittman-Robertson Act, which I believe was, what, 1937 in the States? And yep. over, over $2 billion has come from outdoor users and hunters and uh, recreational fishermen and bird watchers, you name it. An 11% excise tax that goes directly to fish and wildlife. That's what I like. I like the fact that there's money that can be put towards something tangible what that looks like now and what the, the model itself and where that money's going to go and how it's going to be allocated that's something to talk about but that that's what i like is we need that injection of funding it, it's worked great for freshwater oh, fisheries oh, oh, can, can i just but hang on a second but but we we hear this all the time i read it all the time i hear it all the time what people believe is all the license revenue that we talked about my, my tags, my license, uh, my habitat, whatever. That's the money that goes to fund. I, I meant to grab those numbers and I didn't. But I mean, the, the money that we make off of license sales and fines and stuff is not enough to pay for the operation. Mike, where does the rest of the money come from? Probably general revenue, uh, you know, to, to offset some of those things. Um, there's no other source of money. And, and that's it. So, but we're not fully funded. Just because we all go out and buy tags... We're not no. fully, we're not even close to fully funded. Not, not even half. No, yeah, it's not even not. half. No, it's $24 million to run Fish and Wildlife. Mm-hmm. And um, I think our license sales are between nine and $11 million. Depending on the year. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, um, it, 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 here, here's the other problem though. How much is a lynx tag? Eight, eight, bucks. eight bucks. Isn't that an insult to a lynx? I think it is. Oh, complete, completely agree. I, I would have no problem doubling tags. Oh, here comes the hate mail. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. If they, if they want to say that they, they truly care about uh, wildlife and habitat and getting those numbers back up and doing what we need to do, then make that happen. And, okay, so I, I, I dig where you're at. Mike Morris, what's a moose worth? Well, I'd say a moose is probably worth about uh, $10 a pound and uh, for, for the protein value, but a cow moose is probably worth... Uh, Twenty, thirty thousand dollars because they breed every year and and they uh, renewable resource that we have here. So we have to look at the entire ho- herd. I, I would say the moose in this province, if our herds were up to where they should be, probably several billion dollars. 
in uh, so what's a moose worth to so the- we did the math um by we i mean just a very small group of us uh but the fact is so if you look at it from our perspective where the moose gets harvested from a non-resident tourist paying a lot of money to come here um so that's not your average but we, we did the math on that plus uh the hide going to a first nation they producing traditional arts and crafts from it us buying it back you you would have to replace the protein value with very similar grown beef and we came to fifty thousand dollars a moose. Wow! And that's not that's not high. That's not inflating anything. I, I can show you that in a heartbeat. Is that Canadian or yeah, US? Canadian? Okay. Fifty thousand Canadian per moose. So now I would like to know in Yomanika how many moose we've lost when we lost seventy percent of our moose. <laughs> how, how, what did we just lose? Yeah. Do what's the impact? Know? Yeah. What's the impact? You bet. I, I think seventy percent is low. I think uh, we're probably up pushing ninety percent uh, in the Yomanika for our moose population going down. A lot of money, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of tourism dollars. And, and that's been the problem with our whole process is we've been so focused on fiber and no other value on the land here that people have forgotten about that. It's time we gave our head a shake and bring those numbers back up. There's no reason why we can't bring those numbers back up over the next. It might take uh, 30 years to bring those numbers up to where we can harvest uh, 50, 80, uh, 100,000 moose in a year. That uh, study I referenced earlier, the uh, 2017 population estimate, they, they figure for the Amanika in 2017 was between 15,000 and 35,000 moose. That's it. Was what? Between 15,000 and 35,000 moose for Region 7A. Be- between 15... Th- oh. I think that's high. You know, we, we talked earlier offline here before we started here about the, the methodology that uh, they use to determine inventory numbers for moose and for everything else. and. Uh, it's a flawed process, and uh, I think we need to come up with, with better ways and more accurate ways of, of determining exactly what our wildlife populations are. Those are big gaps. I, it was a good conversation, So, and we're not scientists, but we're going to give you just a general example. Mike, just talk a little bit about, there's, what do you call it? What do we call it? It's called strata, stratified block count. Stratified block count. Mike, so just give them a, just give everybody an idea of some of the some of the science that would be applied just in general terms. And remember, this is we're oversimplifying, but just so you understand how it's not their fault; it's the best science that they have. So go ahead. So I've been told this. So and I'm again not a scientist, but uh, <laughs> when when and there's a difference from region to region as well when inventories are being done. I was told on a flight um, they they pick certain places some that are high in density some that they know are low in density some that are sort of medium some that have cover and some that don't and so if there's a moose standing wide out in the open that counts for one moose if there's a moose standing in cover and it's kind of difficult to see that's 1.5 and then if there's really close dense cover and they happen to see a moose in that that counts for 70 moose 70 moose and then those numbers go into a model and uh, get extrapolated or extrapolated over the uh, Omanika region, I guess. And if it's different, then uh, you know I would like to hear it. Um, what you know the what numbers are used or how it's being done. That's what I've been told how it's done. And then um, they they have objectives. Uh, they're they're uh, cow to bull ratio uh, objectives and and calf to cow ratios, but no density. So at the end of the day, if if, if these flights come up with a certain number, um, licenses are going to be put out, LAH is going to be put out, uh, quotas are going to be put out on that. First Nations are somewhere in there. Um, I don't know. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, what they probably think is you're not going to extinct moose just by having a bunch of people on the landscape. 
So let let them go, right? And you you were uh, saying earlier, Don, what the uproar was when there was a suggestion made to shut down the calf season. So we're not willing to deal with predators uh, politically, not for moose anyway. Um, we're not willing to uh, deal with habitat because of a, a higher need for fiber. Uh, we're not willing to deal with anything other than regulations. So um, at the end of the day, I don't know. And then so getting back to your funding models, um, you can throw several billion dollars at the model that we have right now. You're not going to put one more moose in a swamp with it because all they're going to get you is maybe more accurate information. But if they're not allowed to pull any levers that need to be pulled, you're changing nothing. So it's the cart and the horse thing. I think the, the horses need to become uh, a focus of what are we going to do? And then you put the cart with the full of money behind it to pay for it. But then first needs to be the will that we're actually going to change something. Oh, completely agree. Uh, no arguments there. We do need a direct way of spending that money and where it's going to go. Like I said, how it looks, I don't know, but uh, you're, you're right. We, we need to change how wildlife is managed right now. And, but we also need to fund how it's going to look. So. so a couple of things on that. When we look at the Pittman-Roberts Act in the U.S., you've got 11% excise tax. It's actually charged to the manufacturers. So it's on uh, archery equipment, uh, firearms, and ammunition. And then there's a 10% excise tax on federal excise tax charged uh, against handgun sales. So here's what's interesting, though. And this is, this is the part that will surprise people because a lot of people reference um, the Pittman-Robertson uh, Pittman Act in the U.S. as something we'd like, and I'd like it here too because it's a federal act. But to get the money, each state has to have a cent legislation that requires them. So if you get your federal payout, you have to have a cent legislation and you have to have a very specific plan about what you're doing with the money. So they want to budget what the money's being used for, what you're doing on the, on the land base, what populations you're... I mean, it's not just... You need to have legislation, but you got to have a plan for the money. Any of the money that's unused at the end of the year gets returned into a general revenue fund that gets reapplied, I believe, to a migratory uh, bird convention uh, or a fisheries one. I can't remember. So here's the interesting stat on this. So this is this is wildlife uh, funding. Eighty percent of the funding for that in the U.S. Eighty percent of the Pittman Robertson funds comes from recreational shooting. Only 20% of the revenue that's generated actually comes from hunters. So it's people that are going out that will never hunt. I mean, and yes, there's, it's, for, it's tough for them because there's some cross-pollination between those populations. But there's, there's people that go to the range every day, and they'll never shoot an animal in their life. It's not part of what they do. They're in pistol clubs and long-range shooting clubs and, you know, three-gun competitions and, you know, skeet shooting clubs. 80% of the revenue that's generated for wildlife in the U.S. off that program has got nothing to do with a hunter. And I think that's important because that's one of the reasons it's, it's effective. Now, I, 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 I was hoping you'd set this up because I'm going to ask everybody a question. And, and this is the part where it's going to, because all of us are hunters, right? We're all hunters. So state of Washington, state of Oregon, both try to do a backpack tax. So they want to go after like you, the, the person that's not the hunter, but you're going to go buy your North Face or your, your Deuter backpack or your Lowe's backpack. So we want a backpack tax. And they even talked about maybe on hiking boots and stuff. And it got shot down like crazy. Oh, it was quick. Yeah, they shot it right down. They shot it right down. But here's what was really interesting about it. I, I, was, listening, I was listening to uh, another podcast. And then I was reading just some conversation threads in a, in a U.S. Uh, hunting group. And, and somebody in the U.S. hunting group it was talking about that. And he said, you know, you got to ask yourself the question, though. It, right now, hunters, 
even though it's not fully funded, our what we pay for is largely what supports. I mean, it's it's probably close to fifty percent of the revenue that's generated for fish and wildlife uh, conservation in the province comes from us. So we do we get a bigger say in the in the conversation? He said, "You put a backpack tax in." He said, "Do I don't know if I want those people at the same table dealing in, in the U.S. dealing with public land debates and like do I want to give them?" He, he said, "We got to be careful about what we're asking here." Yeah, I want them to pay for it, but right now, if we're paying the freight, I get a bigger part of the conversation. I don't necessarily want to get a backpack tax in and have them sit at the same table. And he said, because, oh, here's why. He said, because there's way more money generated by the anti-hunting, environmental, and, and animal protection movement in the U.S. than there ever will be by the hunting community. And if they're only 4% of the population that hunt, he said, I don't think I need them at the, at the table. It was a great conversation. I never would have thought it that way. Because if, if I asked everybody tomorrow, Mike, you're, a, you're an outfitter. You and I have had some discussions, even when Steve and I talked about trying to go to three bears. That has a bad consequence sometimes in some areas. Some outfitters wouldn't want that. I totally get it. We have 100,000 people applied for licenses last year, right? Around 100,000, yeah. Just imagine in this great movement, let's say veganism fails. Everybody doesn't want to be a vegan anymore. Uh, they don't want to be vegetarians. They all want to go and get meat. Is everybody at this table ready for 200,000 people to hit the field hunting? Everybody ready for 200,000 people putting demand on the LAH system? Mid-80s, I believe we had uh, roughly 175,000. Uh, yeah, it's declined year over year. But if you asked all those people right now, they're already complaining about a denuded landscape and not a lot of opportunity. What if everybody always said, hey, this hunting totally makes sense? So on one side, it's like we want people. We want people to come into this thing. We want to protect our tradition. We want more wildlife. We want to be able to consume, right? But we got to find a funding model. And I agree with you, Michael. The money doesn't matter if you don't know what you're going to do with it. And what we don't need, and I've heard this from biologists, one of the best things I heard uh, from a bio, we, we did a fundraising project. Michael donated a, a, a moose hunt a couple of years ago at our banquet. And then we sold uh, tickets from Spruce City and we gave him 20 grand to do some moose research. And it was Roy Ree from the university. But what he said, what, the best thing I ever heard, we don't need to study anything. He said, all of the moose stuff is done. You want to know how to recover moose? All the science already exists. You don't need, you don't need to count them anymore. You don't need to research it anymore. He said, we know exactly what we need to do. Then you got to go back to what the wildlife manager, the unknown wildlife manager we're referencing said, but we're, we don't have the will to do it. You don't have the will, but you, you will need some money to do it. You will need, because some of, the, some of those programs, habitat rehabilitation isn't free. So I think we need a better funding model. I think to your point, I think $8 for a lynx isn't enough. I think if a moose is worth 50 grand or, or, or whatever we think of, it's worth $10 a pound or whatever it is, the, the money that we pay for tags, if it's going to be dedicated funding, if everybody wants to continue to have a voice in the conversation, I'm, I think every hunter, if they knew that wildlife were being, if they knew that wildlife were being, were being managed, they knew that they could see recovery on the landscape, you charge them more for that, they would pay to keep it that way. And those that don't, you know, that, that's going to be the fringe. And I think we always get hung up on that. You know, there's 10% of the people that will never make happy, 10% of the people that don't care. I just care about the, let's just deal with the 80% in the middle. 80% of, of hunters listening to this podcast would be, charge me more, get me more. Absolutely. That's right? My point. I'll pay more, but you better put more moose back on the landscape. There better be more sheep on the mountain. There better be more salmon in the rivers. That's where I think it needs to be. That's why it has to be a package. It can't be one or the other. It, it, it has to be a package of things, which is uh, legislation, legislation, policy, regulation to make things happen so uh, decision makers can pull the levers and the money with it. 
Yeah, you bet. Another big part of that package is wildlife viewing. You know, the number of people that go out just to look at a moose or look at a bear or any kind of wildlife they can get is enormous. Like the bear viewing uh, business in British Columbia pre-COVID um, was, was huge. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, it can be even larger. So, but our wildlife populations have been decimated and they are so low. It's, you know, I, I, I look at it very much the same as the Atlantic cod fishery. You had to shut it down because yep. we ran out of codfish. The province and maybe even the feds have a responsibility to start funding habitat restoration so that we can rebuild those populations. And as we're rebuilding those populations and the opportunities start increasing, that's when we start raising the, the uh, amount of money that people pay to go out and harvest the moose or whatever kind of animals they have. But I think it's going to take that combined with federal and provincial resources to try and rebuild our habitat and, the, and restore the habitat in British Columbia to maintain those populations. Fur bears are the same way. The fur, you know, the marten population in British Columbia, the Almanica used to have the heaviest marten population in the entire province. And right now I'd say that the par, uh, marten population is down by more than 90%. What levers do we have as hunters and anglers and outdoor users have to to pressure government to make these changes? Uh, you know what what you're doing right now. Uh, the you know some of the different things that you've done. Uh, you're starting to make some some noise out there, and that helps politicians and you know folks like me when we're sitting in the legislature when we can reference something that's happening on the outside. Um, when it's done properly, you know, if it's done, uh, you know, radically or, you know, uh, you know in, in some other format, uh, we don't get the same reaction, you know, when we're sitting in the legislature. But you guys have taken a very mature approach to this, I think, uh, particularly Spruce City Wildlife. I've been doing a phenomenal job and I, I've been monitoring what's been going on here now for years. Um, you guys have really uh, picked up the pace here, but we need to do this province-wide. And we need to do it so that we're not pushing anybody out of the circle that we're including as many people into the circle, you know, uh, one campfire kind of policy uh, yep, for sure. that we have here. And, and that's the only way we're going to do it. Okay, so these emails, letters, everything that we're doing is working. Yeah, it, it is. And, you know, the, the other thing, and, you know, speaking as a, as a politician, um, I get form letters in my office all the time, and my colleagues do as well. We don't pay a lot of attention to okay. it. But if I get a letter in and I know it's specifically written by an individual, I'll pick the phone up and call them. Or I will get the staff to set up a meeting and then I can meet with that individual. You know, it might take two or three weeks to see them with the schedules, but form letters don't work for us. Okay. You, you hear that, everybody listening? What we are doing is working. Personalize it. Keep it up. What, out of the, one of the things I love about Michael Schneider um, is uh, he has a real direct, like when he's got a problem with Flynnrow, it's it, I mean, no no emails. Eventually, he just camps outside their office. It's like, oh, fancy meeting you here. Yeah, I just happen to be driving by. I've been waiting here for three days, sleeping in my truck, waiting for you guys. Let's have a conversation. But I but I think that that's you have to meet the the, the people, and it's not conflict. You have to meet people where they're at. So the people that have the opposing view for you, you can wait for them to come to you. I think you go to where they're at. And I've taken a cue from Michael, and even prepping for this this podcast. I've been emailing people at Flinro, like, and I, I know they're getting probably sick and tired of my emails. I ask questions all the time, but to me, it's like, hey, listen, like, you guys are you guys are there. I'm a constituent. I have questions. You can either answer my question or I'll file a Freedom of Information Act request, and you can answer my question that way. Either way, I'm getting the answer. Like, we we pay taxes. We have an expectation. Like, to me, it's like, 
you guys are managing a business for, and it's a business. I'm a shareholder. That's how I look at, you know, my role as a, as an outdoors person, I'm a shareholder, the, the government and all the machinery we put around it. You guys are like the, that you're like the board of directors. And I'm saying, I want to return on my investment. So, and Michael, I, I really, I, I know that, uh, there's been a couple of times there's been a few Flynn Row people. It's like, well, I was walking, talking, and you could see like, they're like, oh, Michael Schneider. Yeah, we know him real well. Yeah, yeah a bit, but you do because that's sometimes the only way you have to get there, right? You have to put yourself in front of them and be willing to have the discussion. And after a while, what they, I think what you find is it gets past that adversarial thing and they realize that you're, you're in it for the right, if, if your intent is just to go to, to bitch about something for the sake of bitching, that's one thing. But if you're trying to get to a solution, that's a completely different conversation. And that's kind of where I know well, we've had struggles and we, and this happened with uh, DFO with us as a club. We were, we were pretty heavy handed <laughs> with them. I think it was to the point where it was going to be to the detriment of the fish. But eventually we got to a place where they recognized that our perspective wasn't because we know more. It's because we wanted to know more and we want to help. We're not, you know, we're, we're trying to do this stuff so we can get a better result at the end of the day for fish and wildlife. And DFO, we, we finally found a, a good place to exist because we got past that confrontational stage. What, what would you, not just, not just from the guiding perspective, but what else do you think, because we'll, we'll roll into some final thoughts now. Michael, what do you think would be, what would you tell somebody if they want to be involved and what, what would you tell somebody is the thing that they need to focus on? The one thing that helped me a lot was uh, educating myself uh, and having other people educate me. So you, you have, this is a two-way street. Uh, you do have to listen to people, what they have to say. And um, I don't blame people sometimes when I sit in meetings. I get very passionate Coming from Germany, we're uh, known to be very direct. Uh, we're not, we don't sugarcoat much. Um, <laughs> so if that offends somebody, then I'm sorry. It's not meant to be offensive. It's just how it is. Uh, call a kettle black. And that, not that, you know, and, uh, it's the wrong saying here. But uh, long story short, you need to know what you're talking about or at least acknowledge when there's things that you don't know. The fact is that hunters, trappers, outfitters, uh, a lot of First Nations uh, have a lot of uh, on-the-ground knowledge. If somebody wants to get involved and wants to is not happy with whatever they uh, see as an opportunity or lack thereof, uh, I think they should get involved in a local club. Spruce City is an awesome club, awesome people. Um, I think it's a, it's a place a person can go to get educated, um, have an open mind, and... Um, just apply yourself. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, the bigger this uh, group becomes, uh, the more influential it'll be. Politicians um, react to um, people coming in through the front door or, or making an appointment. Make sure you know what you're going to talk about and make it important. I'm not going to leave out the fact that these forestry jobs or resource jobs um, need to be addressed uh, because we're going to be in, 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 in big trouble here soon. They need to be, something needs to happen. This is also a public resource, by the way. Trees are a public resource. And yep. when, the, when the beetle uplift came, uh, the stumpage fee was changed. And the, the public may not know this, that the trees went from, you know, somewhere in the $20 a cubic meter down to maybe 20 cents a cubic meter. And that varies a lot. So it's just an approximate. But the fact is that their product incoming was... Very, very small to almost nothing because they needed the uplift. They needed them to take those trees and uh, before they burn or go to waste. We are at the end of that beetle infestation. Now we need to change things. Habitat has uh, and wildlife has taken a kick, and um, people need to 
bring that argument back and try to find a balance. Steve Hamilton. <laughs> I, I guess uh, th- th- this last couple hours, everything we've talked about revolves around back to, to point number one, that wildlife is a public trust. Fish, wildlife, habitat, everything on, uh, on the land base belongs to everybody here and everybody that's listening. And as, as Mike Morris said, uh, hunters and anglers, everybody has a voice. We need to use it. Keep it coming. It, it's, it's, not, it's not tough to reach out to an elected official. It's not tough to join a wildlife club. And the, the louder our voice gets as a community, the, the louder it'll be on the political landscape. And we, we can and we will make changes. We've done it before. And we, we just need to, to keep that pressure up and, and keep engaging. And for me, just my finals, this morning before I came to the podcast, it's, it's as simple as this. Somebody sent a picture to one of our hunting pages. Somebody was littering in the backcountry, uh, you know, about 20 kilometers out of Prince George. I grabbed a truck. I grabbed a friend. We went out. We grabbed the, the garbage, took it to the dump. I paid the $25 tipping fee. I'm happy to do it. Why? Because I actually give a shit about the landscape. It, it, isn't, it isn't, you don't just have to put yourself, if you want to make differences in, in hunting and fishing, we have to change a couple of things. We got to change how we face the world as a hunting community. But if you want to impact policy, if you want to fix the land, it starts with you, you know? So I can talk about, I want better habitat and I can talk about, you know, I want better funding and, and, you know, I want more opportunity, but I can't keep driving by, you know, plastic barrels and bagged garbage and that stuff. It starts with something as simple as that. So take ownership of it, you know, on a simple level like that. If that's all you do, you're making a contribution. Join a wildlife club, right? Join a wildlife club. There's fish and wildlife clubs that are terrific all around the province. Join the Wild Sheep Society. I don't even care. I'm a member and I don't hunt sheep, right? We talked about the National Wild Turkey Federation in the United States, probably one of the best organizations on the planet. I'll probably never hunt wild turkeys, but Dustin Snyder and I almost want to become members because they're that good of a club. Pick up a book, read it, read some, read some information, like get in, get informed. I'm probably on my 15th book on hunting philosophy, ecology, wildlife management, the history of, of, of different people in the landscape, because it's important to be like Michael Schneider said, you need to be educated. If you don't know, make an effort to know, and then you can be, you can be included in that conversation for a longer period of time. I think people can, I, it, it, it just starts with taking one step into this. And once you're in it, and if you're passionate about it, you need to connect to this as an issue, and you just can't watch it go by. This is not about witnessing things happen and then bitching about the, the result. You need to be actively participating in the change. So you, don't sit on the sidelines. This is something that's real. It's in our midst. We can't get away from it. Um, that has to happen. But I, and I think on the other side, I'm with you, Michael, on the, I'm with you on, on, on forestry and industry addressing what looks forward. But as a province, whether it's managing, managing trees or salmon or moose, we have to start understanding that there's values for all those things on the landscape, and we got to start making a plan so that they're there 100 years from now. Mike Morris, final thoughts are with you. Yeah, no, thanks. Uh, been a good discussion here. You know, there, there's, uh, I've always operated under the principle of seek first to understand and then be understood. So find out what's going on and why it's going on, and then inject yourself into the conversation uh, with some solutions uh, to what's going on here. So that's how I operate. And the other tidbit I'd like to lay out here right now, and we saw it with the Atlantic cod fishery. There was a big hue and cry when government shut it down. But it it should have happened long before that. And just because government issues tags, and just because government has an LEH program, and we allot so many tags uh, uh, for various species, 
uh, doesn't necessarily mean that we have the species numbers out there to support that. And I think that uh, hunters need to take that into consideration, uh, you know, pick them up. But, uh, uh, you know, a lot of times we would just go out, uh, my sons and myself, and we would just go out and see what was out there. Never, uh, you know, we would see might see two or three animals, but we'd never shoot them. So uh, I guess I go back just to wind up. Uh, we start, uh, started off with Teddy Roosevelt, and, and he probably accumulated a lot of time on the ground over the years before he he started having his visions and wanted to change the world. And that's what happens when you collect a few gray hairs and wrinkles over the years. <laughs> I've been hunting and trapping and fishing and hiking and camping uh, in much the same area for the past 50 years. And I've seen the cumulative impacts of resource development, of, of everything that's happened in the area here and the impact that it's had on wildlife. Uh, the grouse around, you know, the mice, the voles, uh, uh, everything, the strawberries and huckleberries and all those types of things. And because I have that knowledge, it gives me the ability, you know, it's my responsibility, I feel, to stand up and fight for that. I, we've made a mistake along the, the road here in getting to where we are today, uh, depleting our wildlife populations the way we have. It's my responsibility and others who share that knowledge, that cumulative effects knowledge, to step forward and say, this is the way it used to be. This is what's happened. We don't need science to say that we've over-harvested. We don't need science to say, you know, that some disease happened and why it happened and why forest fires happen like that, because we have that cumulative knowledge. Uh, so we need to step forward. And there's a whole bunch of guys out there like me that have that cumulative knowledge, and we need to hear more from those folks. And I think we are through this podcast and through uh, the, the Hunter Circle and some of the actions that we've taken out there. But those are the guys that need to be talking to the politicians and say, you know, I remember 40 years ago, it was like this. And these things have happened over the last 40 years. And, uh, you know, we can say that it's the cause. And uh, so we need to do more of that. And, and uh, I'm glad to see that we're going in this direction. I'm expecting big things from everybody uh, and hopefully big things from politicians as we move forward. Thanks so much to Mike Morris uh, for those awesome, awesome uh, words and leading this discussion today. It, it, this has been a, this has been a, a, a good topic that we've talked around and, and the format for us is we, we want this to feel like we are just around a campfire and that the only bad questions are the ones that we don't ask. And the only stupid things to say are the things that you don't say when you should, right? So that we can make sure we put everything into the pot and take a look at it. I've heard, uh, I've heard somebody else say, sometimes you got to take your ideas to the gym or sometimes you got to take the ideas and your thoughts about things. You got to hold them up to the light and see, do they make sense and are they relevant and do we need to change or shift? Uh, and that's what we've been doing this podcast. So uh, thanks to Mike Morris, Michael Schneider, Steve Hamilton, uh, Matt Wakem, who sat through this whole thing, our producer and engineer for getting us set up. Uh, episode four, we'll be, uh, we're going to be going in the studio next week to do that with Maddie Starnes and Brandy Hansen and Steve and myself. And we're going to talk a little bit about just life as growing up as hunters. And the interesting part, uh, Steve and I are adult onset hunters and Brandy and Mandy grew up in it, grew up hunting and trapping. And Steve and I came late to the party. So we're going to learn something from them. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that. So if you have questions um, about anything related to hunting, fishing, conservation, whether it's legislation or otherwise, and you want to reach out to either Michael Schneider through the Guides Outfitters Association of British Columbia or through Michael at Driftwood Valley Outfitters, you can find him there. If you want to get a hold of Mike Morris and have him either talk to you or connect you with the right person in the legislature, uh, he'd be happy to take uh, your email or your phone call. You can call his office. We're going to put contact numbers for them both up as well as Steve. 
uh, through Spruce City Wildlife. So we'll put everybody's uh, contact info up so you can get a hold of them. And if you want to buy a car, you <laughs> and if you want to buy a car while you're listening to this, you can call me at Wood Wheaton Supercenter. So on behalf of Spruce City Wildlife, Wood Wheaton Supercenter, and all of us here at the Cut Banks Conversation, you guys have a great weekend. Hunt hard, hunt safe. Take care.